0: In action and set for Austin UFC Fight Night: dariush versus Arutkin coming at you this week. We got a lot of fights to talk about. You're gonna want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get into it. it." And just like that, we are back with Fight Night Picks. As always, one half of your hosting duo, Instagram and X at Craig Allen FNP. With me to my left, to your right, respective socials matt allen fnp and look at that the ufc they're back in texas austin gets its fifth event and on paper matt it was like my guy figured it was apropos to wear the jersey i'm a big browns fan and not too far away from austin is college station and i bought in to Johnny Football. So again, on paper, Johnny Football looked great for the Browns. On paper, this Austin card looks like it could deliver a fifth overall from the city. Maybe Joe Rogan will make an appearance in the crowd, but you look at this one, four versus eight in the main event at Lightweight. It is Daryush coming off that unsuccessful bid to get to the title. He was taking on Charles Oliveira, get taken to school earlier on this year. Armand Zaruki in his last time out suffered a little bit of adversity in the second round. He ends up getting the win over a Weird co main event Joaquim Silva, who's also on this card. Co main event, short notice as well in the rankings on nine days' notice. Jalen Turner coming in, replacing Dan Hooker, who he fought, and that is going to be taking place. Turner taking on Bobby Green, both guys out of SoCal. Both guys have had conversations with Rampage Jackson. And Ryan Sheckler, interesting wow. stuff there. Do you know what I like about this card? I feel like even fighters who are a little bit lower on the prelims have all had fairly significant pushes at some and, point throughout their careers, right? You look at Misha Tate, we haven't even mentioned her, one of the all-time great female fighters, and she's not even on the main card. It, it was out there earlier on, on Reddit a few days ago, 13 fighters on this card have competed in a main event or co-main event with it's the UFC, impressive. 10 fighters are ranked on this card. The biggest story that you're going to have to look out for, There are a total of seven fighters that are either moving between weight classes, had their last fight as a catch weight, or had missed weight in their last matchup. So weigh-ins are going to be key in Texas this week. And do you know what fight I'm pretty excited for that's kind of, uh, it's a bit of an unknown. I think Joe Stilecki Tracar Close is going to be a fun fight. It's a bit of a contrast in styles, but again, it speaks to what I was talking of. Fighters who are on this card who had significant pushes, are they going to go on to fight in the top 15? Probably not, but people forget how good Tracar Close was before a lot of this inconsistency has happened, because he was a really heavily pushed fighter 2017 2018 the injuries have gotten in the way a little bit there was the whole jeremy stevens push a lot of people might remember that it's just there's fighters on this card who just at one point in their career people thought they were going to be something close coming off of major acl injury he's been away for a year joe selecki one of the more boring fighters you're going to see out there but overall matt a lot of names on this card a couple of ufc debuts to look forward to i know everybody's excited about Big Zach Reese. My goodness, this guy is a large man coming into the UFC. Also, the LFA interim champ, Adolfo Bellotto. Second time was a charm on Contender Series to get that contract. This is a big week. 13 total fights on this card as we tape this Monday night. If anything changes, you'll find it here on the channel. Question mark kicks this week, two hours before the prelims. We got a lot to talk about, Matt. So, as we always say with Fight Night Picks, let's get get into it. it. A flyweight fight to determine a lot of things to kick off the prelims. Coming up this weekend from Austin, Jamie Lynn Horth going back down to flyweight to take on Veronica Hardy. And it's a little bit like Selection Sunday when it comes to college basketball because seeding is key in this matchup. These two women, though, they're kind of on the come up and the come back. They're still very much in play in the overall top 15 of this women's flyweight division. When you look at it, Jamie Lynn Horth, she had the one fight up at Bantamweight. It was a first in her overall career, 6-0 and as a pro, 3-0 as an amateur, was the Canadian out of Squamish, BC, now she's moving it back down to flyweight, she was the LFA champ before she made her move into the UFC, and for Horth, this has got to feel good, right, I mean, you get that debut win out of the way, you beat somebody like Haley Cowan, who's out of Texas, so it's got to be a little bit awkward for Cowan, who's most likely in attendance, not too far away from Waco, but when you look at it for Horth, out of Squamish, the pride of Squamish, Matt, I mean, listen, colton smith cole smith rather he tried and and it worked for a little bit almost beat miles johns but it didn't work all that well horth is really carrying the torch but when i look at this fight matt overall the storylines of horth moving back down to 125 not that i'm worried about her weight cut but she's a massive flyweight if you go back and you watch her fights and And, hardy's not a big fighter by any means. no and veronica hardy i mean she's bounced around she had that one fight at 135 against bm Malecki. and people might forget like Hardy was out for three years and four days from 2020 to 2023. Concussion issues looked like, that was it. Like retirement was on the way. She's gone on to work around PFL Europe with Dan Hardy. She works for Aris FC. She has a lot of commentary gigs. So for Hardy, the big comeback fighter last time out. And when you look at it overall, Matt, I mean, I think of Ning Guang when I think of somebody like Juliana Miller. That was who Veronica Hardy was able to beat. Ultimate fighter winners that I know... But nobody else knows. It's been now, a while since there's been Ning, some great ultimate Ming won the ultimate fighter, China, And everybody needs a Rolston Wee to beat. And for Veronica Hardy, that was her Juliana Miller. And Miller's 3-3 three and three now. It's not all that great of a win. But if you go back and you watch that fight, Matt, both of these women share a lot of similarities. They're both decent strikers. They do it in completely different exactly. ways. And we'll kind of dive into the, the synopsis there. Jamie Lynn Horth has bad takedown defense. Jamie Lynn Horth has... Good submission abilities to get out of bad position. She's just like pick there's a lot of fighters on this card that I'm gonna talk about. They're gonna go Kamora lock, they're gonna go leg lock to get themselves back up to the feet. But when it does come down to it, Matt, I feel like Veronica Hardy's a better grappler than Jamie Lynn Horth, and I don't know if everybody's going to be talking about that part. And I do agree with you, because here's the thing about Veronica Hardy. For the longest time, she was kind of two years away from being two years away, right? You thought, hey, if she is able to make some of those improvements, not to her striking game, because she does have really nice strikes. She reminds me of a fighter, hopefully you get a kick out of this, I thought of this today. Well, we I already was had, always, well hold on, we already had Guang Yo. So. I was always critical of this fighter. He is good, but Phariseum, when you look at him strike, right? They're really nice to look at, but he's not the most powerful striker in terms of damage. Veronica Hardy, I would kind of put in that category. Technically, she is a very good striker, but she's not going to go out there and really put her opponents away with massive shots, where I do think she is going to be able to land on Horth. I just don't know if she's going to be able to land on Horth so consistently without the takedown, and that's where I do agree with you. That's why I do think the offensive takedown is going to be really important for Hardy, because saying she would look like she was two years away from being two years away, it feels like she is making those improvements now, and I know the uh, Juliana Miller fight. The opponent might not be the best opponent in the world but Hardy does look like she's making improvements to her game, Do you agree? Listen, I mean, stats and control time, they don't always tell the tale you gotta go back and watch the fight but if you look at it for Hardy at the end of it 3 times 30, 27, 7 minutes and 36 seconds of control time. She absolutely dominated a good jiu-jitsu exactly. player. And you talk about the striking with Hardy. We mentioned this on the build-up to the Miller fight. Now, candidly, did I take uh, Hardy in that one? No, but I throw up every red flag in the book as to why you should. And she was a big underdog in that fight. Gets the win. But Hardy, when it comes to the ferocity and the ferocity of her strikes you hear that in that debut against Ashley Evan Smith, Dan Hardy, they weren't together at that exactly. point at all. Veronica Hardy was married It's and like was that Macedo. Justin Verlander meme where he like throws Kate up to the ball with his number on it. Hardy was all over it with Macedo at the time. If that makes any sense to the fans out there, is wow, she's really ferocious. She hits really hard. She has a big variety of strikes and you look at it, again, just numbers on a page and her overall skill set. She was a five-time USA National champ in Taekwondo. I mean, highly accredited and belted in Karate Taekwondo Kwon Do and BJJ, that's been it for Hardy. And the build into this fight, you've seen it with JHK and the All Star, and I'm going to reference them a lot this week, but. Cardi talking about the fact that she's really moved her talents, the Team Renegade with the Edwards brothers, and the whole list of talent that's at that gym to work more on her grappling. You see the striking and everything at a Great Britain top team. You see her training in the States at Henzo Gracie's, and I'll throw some pictures up there from her Instagram there. Now, again, the big payback on this one, Jamie Lynn Horth. you go down through it, you look at everything. I bring up Squamish BC and everybody that she's been able to train with, but Squamish... We're talking inland a little bit from Vancouver, but you're getting a little bit of the work in Vancouver. But the big thing for Jamie Lynn Horth, you see it on her Instagram as well. Not only did Lupi Godinez go to train at Lobo Gym in Mexico, Horth went along for it as well. So a little bit of the camp there, a little bit in Canada as well. And Horth has really kind of gained in her skill set. Her striking, she'll give one to take one. She hits really hard. So I was down on Horth kind of coming into the UFC. I picked Cowan, you picked Horth. But overall, when you go back and you look at a lot of her performances, she's got low hands. She keeps her head really high and she can withstand a lot of the punishment. And if you go back through it, you look at everything, she can struggle to break some of those clinch positions. And I found the biggest fight to go back and watch to get ready for this one. And I think I mentioned in the Cowan video was her fight against Karin Laframboise. She's short, she's compact, she's supposed to fight on contender series with Laframboise, and I think she would've ultimately gotten a UFC shot. But she is one hit, one kill with a grappling and her jiu-jitsu. And she was able to control large portions of the first round and the second round against Horse. End of the second round, horse starts to open up with the striking. Hurts the was Third round, it's horse. And that's why I think this fight's kind of weird, right? You think about this with pitching at really high levels in playoff matchups, right? You can't show your off speed early. You want to save it, right? You want to keep batters on their heels. I almost don't want Veronica Hardy to go for a lot of takedowns early in this matchup because if she does get those defended, especially early on, on, it's going to make her more of a sitting duck on the outside, and make it less of a threat as this fight goes down the stretch, because Horth's best opportunity to win this fight is, of course, defend those takedowns with the low hands that you speak of, and I do think she is the more damaging striker between these two in the pocket. Now, the volume game might be a little bit interesting if Hardy is able to really go in there, throw with a lot of good flurries, because she We haven't won't... seen it that much. No, because she will throw in these blitzes, right? And that's where Horth could hit her with a big counter shot, because when she is active on those two or three big hooks on the those entries. If they land and she's able to evade the one or two big shots of Horth, then those are positive points for Hardy that Horth will have a retaliation for, but if she finds herself getting hit, getting countered, if she's not able to get those takedowns, it could be a really long night for Hardy because I don't think these two really compare in terms of punching power. Now, I don't think Horth is going to go out there and get a ton of TKOs at the highest level, but in terms of damage, I, I do think she is the more damaging striker for sure on the feet. When you look at it and you consider like that, I think you should leave Skit, where hey, Mike has two, Mike has the best friend group but I have 200 friends in my friend group and the guy goes that's solid it's lights out if anybody was lights out in anything Jamie Lynn Horth it comes down to her striking Veronica Hardy it comes down to her takedowns in her ground game Hardy had a fight of the night you can go back and watch it it was against Andrea Lee and Hardy tries to grapple and Lee tries to strike, and all three judges score 30 27 Andrea Lee because the striking beat out the grappling. But so, to be fair, I do think Hardy has improved since that yes, fight, Yes, she, she definitely has. Again, a bevy of different gyms, a bevy of different partners to train with, and a big X factor in this one for Jamie Lynn Horth, and this is a double meaning. Malcolm Gordon flew from Ontario to wow. BC to train with Jamie Lynn Horth to get ready for this matchup. If you're going to look at a 125er that's going to be able to wrestle to a pretty high degree, Malcolm Gordon's that guy. Has it translated to success in the UFC? No. But he also came in after 32, and I wouldn't have expected it anyway. So when we do look at this matchup, Matt, Jamie Lynn Horth, it's about at par. I'm going to look at the topology votes, Matt. We uh, leave this one to the fans, but we're going to throw an over-under out there. I'm going to say over-under... I'm gonna say 60% Veronica Hardy I think the fans have her I think they'll be over I think she's popular and it's the opposite 1,442 total votes 56% Horth 83% by decision for the 44% that have Hardy 82% by decision so the fans have Horth the odds are close what's your pick in this one it's a really difficult fight to pick but I am gonna go with Hardy for what you mentioned at the start of the video I think the offensive takedowns are going to be important now again don't show it early, because if it's something that doesn't work, I do think it's gonna let Horth gain in confidence and really let her hand start to go a little bit more, and if that's the case, it is going to give her more opportunities to land one of those really devastating blows on Hardy, but I do think the offensive takedowns are going to help Veronica Hardy in this matchup. I think the size is going to be interesting, but as I say that, Hardy's pretty used to fighting fighters who are bigger than her, right? Like, every single matchup, it kind of looks like she's a weight class smaller than her opponent, so I think that's going to help her with the offensive takedowns, and I think those are gonna be key. Yeah, I mean, it's been 50-50 the last two of her fights bia malecki retired her bia malecki at the time was two and oh three and zero, oh, and then juliana miller was a size bigger and juliana miller wasn't able to withstand the pressure i'm gonna go <sighs> i have a hard time with this one guys like really i'm gonna go with Veronica cardi as well i think the grappling can win out but jamie lynn horth if you go back and you watch a lot of the tape she will get taken down she will threaten with some of her jiu-jitsu she's got a really good top game she's damaging with elbows and her strikes and when it's on the feet Fourth is a better striker even though you know numbers on a page it might not tell you that so really i'd advise somebody on this one go back watch a lot of the tape maybe grab yourself a pot and popcorn when you're watching this one sit it out and enjoy it for what it's worth both of us in this one going with the english american venezuelan veronica hardy to get the win make sure you tune in for the rest of the videos in the series you can only find them in the full card video keep it locked in with fight name picks we always say let's, let's get, get into it, it. This is a fight you should tell your weird Uncle Terry about. It's an absolute dumpster fire at 170 pounds. We have a couple of guys with a combined UFC record of 4-9. Sometimes they make weight one more than the other, and it is a matchup and a bit of a clash of contrasting styles. We have the Prodigy, not BJ Penn. It's Wellington Terman representing one of the biggest, not up-and-coming, just biggest gyms of all time now, Teixeira MMA and Fitness. He's going to be taking on the Night Train, no, not Jason Aldean. We're talking about Jared Gooden. I'm not. The last time I talked about a Jared Gooden fight, I got in a spat with another guy that makes videos like this because I was highly critical of Jared Gooden missing weight. And I still stand by it at this point. Matt, Jared Gooden, 177 pounds, took a fight on short notice his last time out. He was unsuccessful getting the win he was taking on Carlson Harris. Now, there's a lot of common opponents between these two guys. Randy Brown's one of them, Carlson Harris is another. And it's funny because Jared Gooden tried to fight him at 170, came in at 177. Wellington Terman fought him at 170 way back in Brazil years ago, wasn't able to beat him. Carlson Harris, turns out he's pretty good. But when you do look at it for Jared Gooden, the reason why I was so, kind of upset about the weight miss was 177 in that matchup against carlson harris on short notice he weighed 174 before he got signed into the ufc fighting at walterweight ufl you know tito and rampage he was taking on demarcus jackson missed weight in that one he also missed weight way back when taking on come a rude boy boy can you get it up uh randy brown so Jared Gooden, it's been a thing, and he's missed weight a fair amount of times. Getting ready for this one, training at Muscle City Barbell. And he's also featured in a new movie that's coming out, so I'll throw a couple of things up there. But interesting stuff for him. When you look at it for both these guys, though, Matt, Jared Gooden gets a lot done with his boxing. For sure. And one of the sneaky parts about his game that I didn't think about, going into the tape study of all this, he rips the body to great effect in his matchups. You saw that in the Demarcus Jackson fight where he does it in the first round. He doesn't have good takedown defense. I know UFC numbers on a page like 68%. It's not very good. No, I'd agree. But when he does get his boxing going and when he does figure out the range, if his opponent's not throwing a lot of kicks and not really chopping up his legs, the threat of the takedown isn't there, Jared Gooden can take away. And that right hand that he throws with a little bit of a boop right on the end of it, it is an interesting punch. And when you're taking on a guy like Wellington Terman, who you watch his first fight in the UFC, you watch him now, he's changed a lot. In the fact that- He's a better striker, i think. Yeah, his striking's gotten better. His head movement's gotten better. His chin's gotten a lot worse. (laughs) Exactly, It's gotten a lot worse. This is a very weird fight for all the reasons you brought up. And the thing about Wellington is every time you do start to see those improvements in his fight, he'll kind of give you a reason to not believe in him anymore. And Wellington is a fighter who when he starts to get touched up on the feet, he does get a little bit uncomfortable with it. And I do think he's the more complete fighter in this matchup. That has to be said. You bring up some of the defensive liabilities Gooden has in his grappling. Wellington is a very good grappler, especially when he's able to get that top position. He has good ground and pound, great submissions, like a really nice BJJ game. But the thing is, he's almost too good of a striker for his own good in a matchup like this, and that's what worries me. If he does get caught throwing some of those naked kicks on the inside when he's in the pocket, I think Gooden could make him pay for some of those shots over the top. But if Gooden isn't able to defend some of those early takedowns, and if the kicks start to make him uncomfortable, I just don't know if the boxing is going to be enough. Because people are going to remember him for his last performance do you guys remember his first run in the ufc it wasn't a great one right? so i went back and i watched it actually getting ready for this one so when i was watching the fights that wellington tournament had i watched his fight against marcio Alessandri jr with future fc where he won the belt and in that one wellington doesn't move his head off the center line marches forward it's all straight line striking he gets into range he hits alessandre he finishes him it's over and then he comes in against Carl Robertson. And I'll throw a clip of us talking about Carl <laughs> Robertson and Terman so you can see many studios ago what it looked like and many haircuts that was ago. an interesting fight. But if you do look at it, I mean, Wellington was a guy that, again, it was all straight line. It was power. It was fury. Even his fight against Carlson Harris, he's chasing him around the cage. So when you look at that guy to the guy now, and you go back and you watch Wellington Terman's last fight, he's taking on Randy Brown. He has changed a lot. He moves his head a lot. He moves his core quite a bit. His legs kind of still do the same thing, though. It's it's kind of the horse kind of which can't is the dog wag the dog wagging the tail or the tail wagging the dog. That's Wellington Terman's problem. If I can spit that one out. And when I watched Jared Gooden again, he likes to strike to the body. He struggles with the takedown defense. And going back through and watching a lot of these fights. I get the impression that you got to figure out what it is, right? Like, a short-notice fight doesn't help Jared Gooden one bit. No. We saw it against Abubakar Nurmagomedov. You go in there, he's got his hands incredibly low, and Gooden holds his hands pretty low, but he held them incredibly low with the threat of the takedown. Nurmagomedov looked like a polished boxer with a record, and he was able to go out there and beat Gooden soundly. So the big thing that I got from Gooden is... You sit here, you watch our graphics, they switch, they change. It's like one of those old 2007 pictures at your grandmother's house that's got the the collage, montage, if you will. You go and you look at these Jared Goon fights and you look at our picture and you see, hey, he's got six of 19 wins by submission. The best guy he beat by submission exactly. was... Four and one Marcel stamps in 2019. And the guy was four and one, and Jared Gooden was 14 and 4. So the submission game isn't the big thing. He definitely has a good breadth of boxing, training at, like I said, Muscle City Barbell, but also with Kelly Davis, who is an accomplished boxing coach. And you see it with Gooden, too. Like he'll he'll cross-train a little bit, Fusion XL. You always have seen Phil Rowe out there. You've seen some Atlanta, some Georgia, a lot of different. Florida Georgia line, am I right, brother? So, when you do look at this one, though, Matt, again, it is a clash of styles. Terman likes to strike more than maybe he should, but when you're training with guys like Adolfo Bellotto, who's in the gym, getting ready for this matchup that he has so, on man. this card, Pereira, who Terman's been kind of going there for a really long time, set up shop, and of course, Glover, who looks like a guy that lives in Boystown or Perth, Andover, New Brunswick now with the plaid, the boots, and the, the, the hat. It is what it is. When I look at this fight, Matt, Terman's a big favorite. I don't really know why. He's very talented, but he beats poor fighters, and he loses to good fighters. Again, the I wins... I think he's more well-rounded out of the, the two. The wins for course. Wellington Tournament in the UFC. Maluko Perez, it was a close fight. Uh, Misha Surkinov, where he was getting, getting the absolute breaks beaten off of him, and then he threw up a Hail Mary submission win. Sam Alvey by split decision, and it was an awful fight. So, again, the wins aren't that great for Jared Gooden. He beat Nicholas Stoltz, my guy, and absolutely put him out. I think his best win overall is the Curtis Millender win that he I've had with it. XMMA. Gooden, we know how good of a striker he is. You look at the topology vote, surprise that's there to you. If Terman's that big of a favorite, I'll say over under 70% Termin. I'll say over. I'm going to say over, and it is slightly over. 1,425 total votes, 72% Termin, 74% by decision for the 28% that have Gooden, 54% by knockout. Matt, if Misha Serkinov can put you just... In so many bad spots, and listen, as Canadians, we thought Misha Serkinov was going to be the greatest. But to be fair, that was a lot of Misha Serkinov win or losses. It was look good until he didn't, yeah. and then lose. So we'll, we'll see how this works out again. Wellington determined early in his career, 170. He spent, but a he's long still span. only 27, You know? He, yeah, he spent like, a it's long kind of span. Wild how young he still is 185. The chin doesn't normally get better, especially when you lose 15 pounds. We saw it his last time out against Randy Brown. He got outstruck as did Jared Gooden at 174 because that's what he weighed when he took on Brown. So in this one, Matt... I have Wellington Turman. I think, again, a little bit more well-rounded. The threat of the takedown would be a big thing for him, but we'll see how it plays out in this matchup. I agree with every single red flag you just threw up about Terman, but I do have him to win, because if he is able to get in that top spot on Gooden, I think that's enough of a game-changing position to where Gooden would have to, what, drop him, basically knock him out to kind of get that back. You look at the Gooden losses, too. I want to leave you with this. Mike Graves is a loss. He made it pretty darn far in the Ultimate Fighter. Bruno Oliveira was on Contender Series. He was the title challenger over with the LFA... Alan Joban, Abus Magomedov, Randy Brown, Millionaire, Impa wow. and Carlson Harris. Jared Gooden has lost to some very, very good fighters. Make sure you check out his new movie that's set to come out called Love Spell. One of two fighters on this card who have recently been featured in featured films. So, Matt, in this one, both of us going with Wellington Termin to get the win. Let us know what you have down below in the comments section. If you're a movie buff, toss out those wrecks for the boys. And check out the rest of the videos on the channel, Matt. Keep it locked in with Fighting Apex. We always say, let's let's get into it. And all of a sudden, it's a UFC debut on the fringe of the top 15. We have the LFA interim, light heavyweight champ, and two-time Dana White's Contender Series contestant, Trator, Hadolfo Balato. He's going to be taking on fan favorite, unless you're Brazilian, it's Duelist, Matt, Ihor Pateria. He beat an all-time legend, our favorite is kids, Shogun. Who about- I cried like Shogun did before he fought Anthony Smith but that fight was done. Yeah, it was what it was. But when you do look at it, Matt, for the Duelist, a lot of fans are really excited about For him sure. making a UFC debut. At the time, we didn't know if he was nineteen and two, or if he was twenty-two. The record might have changed, but this is a guy. I mean, international master of sport in combat sambo, pancration, and. The Ukrainian martial art known as Horting, Horting. A little bit of wrestling, a little bit of grappling, a little bit of striking, just like MMA. Pateria had that background. A tricky sidewinder from Sopar. He's got an awesome right hook. He's got really good kicks. And when it does get down to the mat, maybe the takedown defense a little bit squirrely. But the jiu-jitsu off the bottom is very good. And you'll see a little bit of that with Zach Reese coming up on the card against Cody Brundage. But when you look at this matchup, Matt, Ihor Pateria, they haven't really given him many easy fights. The debut he takes on... Listen, we don't want to channel strike, but Nikolai Na Gu Mariano, and in that fight, he got beat almost pillar to post. First round was kind of competitive. He saw the knees become an issue as it went along. Then he goes out there and he finishes Shogun in Brazil. He does a squirrely little, uh, little finishing move, so to speak, sequence. The fans didn't like that. And then they said, Pateria, here's Carlos Alberg. And he got knocked out in the first round. So pretty good. for Pateria, it hasn't gone all that well. Now he's taking on Bilotto. And when you look at it for Bilotto and for both of these guys getting ready for this one, really good camps. Bilotto training, not just in Brazil, but also moving up to Teixeira MMA and Fitness for this camp to get ready specifically with, I mean, Pereira, the champ. Teixeira, the former champ. Wellington Terman, you might have heard of him. All the Brazilians that are up there. But for Bilotto, if you go on his Instagram, I went back years and he was training with Michelle Pereira, and, or not Michelle Pereira. He's like, Who's this Canadian uh, guy liking my pictures for uh, six years? Alex ago? Pereira and getting ready with a lot of those guys. So for Bellotto, he's been training with some of the best in the world for a long time, and fans have been excited about him. And you might just know him as a knockout artist, but go watch his fights in the regional scene. His fight against Ocasio de Santos, where he wins the belt with the LFA. Two contender series vets. What happens? Acasio comes back in the second round with a striking, but. First round, third round, fourth round, fifth round, it's all belated with the grappling. He's very powerful with his takedown attempts. He's very good with his submissions, training with the chairman, main fitness. For Pateria, finishing off his camp. W.C.A. Uh, why would I say W.C.A.? That's where Jan Blachowicz trains. And Ihor Pateria is in the mountains of Poland. Just getting that mountain air. Getting ready to go down to Austin to fight Bilotto. But he also spent a lot of his camp at Novo in Phuket. And Matt, I said kind of before we started to film this. I'm going to add a picture in. We're going to react to it. Because normally I add pictures in and post. And the fight fans, they get to see it. But Ihor Pateria doesn't look like the guy in front of us anymore. Ihor Pateria, I think listened to the game on repeat for about three weeks and then decided, yep, that's the tattoo I want. Till then, I let my nuts hang. Something like my Jesus piece, huh? Yeah. This is what Ehor Pateria looks like now. Wow. He got a back piece on his front. That's aggressive. That's think, a wild tattoo. Do you think he listened to the game like that? <laughs> Definitely. So Ehor Pateria has the most aggressive tattoo you've ever seen in your entire life. A crucifixion. But it does fight like a guy who would get a tattoo like that to a certain degree. Yeah, I mean, it's like you just listen to Billy Talent's Nothing All to All gas, lose. no pranks. And that's yeah. the fun thing about Pateria. Like, he might not be somebody that you ever project to be in the top 15, but that's the thing about like This This anyway, is a pretty right? close fight. And it, like you said, this is on the fringes of the rankings, I would say. Like, if Bellotto does look very impressive, let's say he goes out there, gets a ground-and-pound finish, or maybe a ground-and-pound into a choke, just, you know, goes out there and gets a nice stoppage win, there's a very good chance he's fighting for a spot in the rankings the next time out. And let's say Pateri is able to get a stoppage himself. Maybe not a rankings, but he's going to you're, go out there and get another really high-level You're fight. getting a Da Jung type of guy. That's who's next. Have fun. Paul Craig's like, I'm moving back up to 205, and do I have an opponent for him? I just think for Pateria, he's one of those fun fighters who, regardless of his record, you're going to be excited to see him fight. Because, like you said, you can almost tell who he is just based on a silhouette of him, because he does have such unique stance for the size of him. He's very long and rangy. Like, the guy's 6'2", 6'3", right it's, it's, down there. Like, I, he's big for how fleet of foot he is. And I mentioned the disciplines that Pateria has. I mean, Horting, we're talking combat, Sambo pancration, just like he's boss Rootin', but when you watch him fight, he almost has like a tricky sidewinder karate stance, but he will mix in that big time right hook. It's not like a Wonder Boy, it's not like a lot of the karate artists that you will see Veronica is on this card it does leave openings because when you watch both these guys, Pateria can cut distance really quickly. Sure. He does a good job of it. I think one thing that's a negative for him is, yeah, the record is a little bit padded. He fought eight times in 2018. And we spoke about that, I feel like, every time but we talk Pateria, about it. Pateria, with that regularity and competition, he was getting better, He's getting better, and then things kind of stalled out around the pandemic. Now here's an opportunity to get back on the horse. When you look at a guy like Bellotto and you go back through and you watch all these performances, he moves in a straight line. He holds his hands low. Available to be hit. His head's completely up, and he is a big, big 205-er. Like, I I listened in, I think it was his last fight when he was taking on the man on Contender Series known as Murtaza Talha. They're saying, this guy looks like a heavyweight. So I found that interesting. He had really good leg kicks in that Talha fight. That broke the distance where he was able to hurt him. He was an underdog in that matchup. But overall, I mean, for Adolfo Bilotto... There's only one guy, Matt, and just like my my favorite song from No Jacket Required by Phil Collins, the MMA prop guy, Billy. Billy, don't you lose my number. Vitor Petrino's got that number. Now, in the first fight, Petrino vaporized him, but in the second fight, if you didn't watch that first round, you only watched the finish, you're like, wow, that Blotto guy sucks. Balado nearly finished Petrino in the first round, and then in the second round, the tables turn and Vitor gets the win over Balado. That was a main event. Actually, Balado, two main events in two years on Contender Series. Petrino's a pretty talented fighter. Guys. Main events uh, count, but yeah, again, you look at this, Balado's basis, you got you got the Muay Thai, you got the Jiu-Jitsu. And I do think that top position is going to be really difficult for Petrino to deal with. I do worry that Pateria is going to play around a little bit too much on his back and not just try to get back up to his feet, because if Pilato really is able to get that wrist control and start to break down his base. He's a very heavy grappler from the top position and he's got phenomenal ground and pound too. It's not just the submissions you have to worry about and I think that's one spot that I just don't know what is going to be able to do to get those spots back outside of a big knockdown, kind of like I the, mentioned the, last Yeah, time. the takedown defense isn't immaculate of Pateria, but he's got good submissions it when good he's on his back too. and he doesn't use it like a fighter earlier on in this card and Jamie Lynn Horth or Muin Gafurov's the guy that we mentioned a lot. It's a lot of leg locks, a lot of uh, Kimura grips then try and get back up to the feet. is going to try and play it if he can. Bilotto, former Pan Am BJJ champ former Brazilian national champ jiu-jitsu as well so when you look at this one Bilotto's a really big favorite to be making a UFC debut Dana White said after his last fight on contender series looks like a heavyweight has the cardio of a middleweight I thought really and then I watched that Ocasio de Santos fight and I went you know what Dana White was telling the truth there. I actually believe him when you look at the top. I think all- he has nicer votes, tattoos, knowing what I know now. Yeah, I like the the koi fish kind of They're tattoos, cool, like yeah. that, like the yeah the the Japanese style. When we do look at the topology votes, Matt, surprised to us there. Do you? I'm going to say over under 85% Balado. Probably in the 90s, just based on the odds with the tattoo. Yeah. Oh, slightly under. Uh, 1425 total votes. 89% Balado, <laughs> <blotto>, 82% <laughs> by, by knockout for the 11% that a Pateria, 63% by knockout. I do think Bilotto is going to be able to get the win. The odds give me a little bit of pause because Bilotto is extremely hittable. And it's not just because he got knocked out by Petrino twice. Even look at the fights that he's winning. Straight line, no movement side to side, no head movement, low hands, head up high. So listen, it's been a hallmark of MMA knockouts, boxing knockouts, Muay Thai knockouts, pick your combat sport knockout. Bilotto could fall victim to it. But in this matchup, I do have Bilotto with the takedowns the ground game. I've also got Hidalgo, but this is a really big matchup to have in your UFC debut, like you had mentioned. Like, Pateria, he might not have the best UFC record, if you will, and you might have uh, slightly higher expectations, but he's still a pretty good fighter who can definitely go out there and get the stoppage and win. So I-, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Pateria is able to win. I think the odds are a little bit ridiculous, but I do have a lot to get the win. He's definitely invested a lot in himself to be going to Phuket and then Poland sure. to get ready for this matchup. Both these guys coming in looking for a big UFC win. Let us know down below in the comments section who you have. Some big-time fights in this card. Darush taking on Zarukian in the main event. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's, Let's get, get into in it. it. Absolute banger at Featherweight. Coming up this weekend, Steve Garcia. He's the hottest hot. Hansel, he's so hot oh. right now. He's blue flame hot. The Mean Machine Garcia going to be taking on Melky Coffee. It's Melchizial Milk... Casta when you look at this matchup, Matt. When I saw this on paper, I went, Man, how can you not be excited about it? For Steve Garcia, why is he so hot? It's because of those last two wins. Really, any of his wins, his last three, but the last two in a row, he finishes Chase Super, knocks him down three times. I count a four knockdowns. In that first round, he absolutely destroyed him. And against Shailan Nordambeka. university. I threw it out there. I mean, Shailan looked really good. It was one of the bigger comebacks that you're going to find. If you saw my tweet out there on Sunday... I was smitten, Matt. I mean, huge comeback. He goes from the southpaw stance. It's a left body kick. He pauses right hand out there, and then he goes down with a hook to hit Shailan Becca with that big-time hit to the liver. Shailan drops like a sack of potatoes. Garcia on top. This guy, when he's on, is so animated and As fired up. As a comeback is CM Punk and Survivor Series, you might say. How long is that going to last? Look but when it, it does back. come down to it... Steve Garcia is one of those guys that win, lose, or draw, I'm going to get excited. Just fight of the night machine. His, his fight against Charlie Antiveros, if you'll remember. Axe kick to the head where he gets wobbled. He finds himself back in it. He drops Antiveros multiple times. It's just bleeding like a stuck pig if Jim Ross, to make another reference uh, to wrestling, was a thing. Steve Garcia had Antiveros there. Now, when Garcia loses tends to get out wrestled or you're able to kind of dip and dab a little bit and you're you're able to piece him up now garcia was supposed to take on sean woodson not that long ago back in september he did an interview with jhk and the all-star mma he said a back injury in training he was grappling with a teammate they got him in a twister his back just got really tight and then all of a sudden it was to the point where he couldn't do a lot he was having some issues he had to go to the pi they recommended that he kind of Move away from the fight, so to speak. So he's been back, he tried to get through it, but it just didn't work. So, back injuries kept Steve Garcia out for a bit. For Mel Costa, the debut short notice up a weight class against Thiago Moises didn't go his way, he got submitted. Although, he tried to throw up some submissions out there. That's going to be hard against one of the better grapplers at 155. But his last time out against right. Lights Out Austin Lingo, the salad wasn't Lights Out. Lingo went down. Costa dominated him. 230 27s, 130 26. I was on the side of 30 26. Costa looked as good as he's looked on the regional scene and almost as good as he's looked ever. So I'm really excited about this. Costa training out of a big gym as is Garcia cuz Garcia you get Texas you get everybody out of New Mexico as well training at a Jackson Wink for Melky Coffee this guy's training to shoot the box of Barrao. And if you like the way that Joe anderson Two looked recently, you're going to w- like the way you look with Costa fighting. And that's why I'm so excited for this matchup. I think Costa might be slightly flashier in this matchup. He is going to go for more of those spinning techniques. and Might that not be a might- good thing. <laughs> exactly. When you fight Steve Garcia, you almost want to stick to the basics and not be too outside of yourself because he can make you pay for any weakness in your game. And Costa's striking might get a lot of the spotlight in this matchup because he is so dynamic on the feet. He throws with a great out put too when he's really able to get in the pocket and use all of his weapons but the offensive wrestling is pretty high level too and you bring it up when Garcia loses these fights it rarely is on the feet even though we have seen him get tested and clipped on the feet but he can get out wrestled in a lot of these matchups and I do think Costa has the type of wrestling in the overall top game to at least stay in that position throughout this matchup and I know everybody wants to get excited oh Costa versus Garcia could be fight of the night I think the path of least resistance for Costa is use some and- of that offensive wrestling and not get too flashy on see saw that the Luis Peña fight against exactly. Steve Garcia wasn't great. That was UFC Rio Rancho when Jan Blahovic called out John Jones to the tune of nobody cheering because New Mexico didn't really show up. He did start Corey Anderson, though. I don't think there were a lot of Coors Light strength that night because that crowd was as mild as could be. Now, if that crowd was in the Maritimes of Canada, people the roof would have gone off the place. But when you do look at this matchup, Costa, a very flashy striking arsenal. He likes to do a lot of the spins. Garcia talked about it with JHK. He knows that. So he's going to try and be straight down the pipe. But when you do watch the Costa fights, he will try and play jiu-jitsu a little bit, maybe more than he should. You remember back in 2018, he was in that big viral clip because he got submitted for 90 seconds. He was unconscious. So that was pretty gross, but a, a very big record coming in at 27 years old, being 20 and six in the matchup. Costa is heavily favored in this one. Complete game from Costa, the big power out of Garcia. And from that southpaw stance. He gains a big advantage on these orthodox guys. He's got really good length. He's got really good distance management. I know Mahashata finished him. That was a surprise to a lot of people. And again, Pena did with the wrestling. But that's the thing about Garcia's style, right? For as powerful as he is, it's not the most refined of techniques. There is a bit of that early career just engaging Oh, to to his team. You can hit him. He is very available. But again, it is one of those risk reward matchups that you have to take into consideration because if you are going to stay in the pocket and try to land on Steve Garcia, and- just know there's a lot of power shots coming back and again with. against a lot of orthodox strikers garcia is going to have that in his back pocket in this matchup yeah costa will switch his stance a little bit but primarily this is southpaw versus southpaw and we have a few of these on this fight card Costa's favored in this matchup we have a look at the topology vote surprise to us as they are to you i think the fans are going to see this one a little bit closer than maybe the odds would suggest so i'm going to say over under 67 and a half percent costa I'll say over. I'm going to say over. It's slightly over, so pretty darn close. 1,412 total votes, 70% Costa, 65% by decision. The fans like Garcia. They respect the power. So 30% of the fans have Garcia, 52% have him to win by knockout. I have Costa in the matchup. I think, again, a lot of those wrestling takedowns, he can switch levels if he's able to blend in yeah. the striking. And he is one of those guys that can mix it in with some of his spins. He reminds me a little bit of Manel Cop with shoes on that way. So I do like Costa in this matchup, but I'm eager to hear who you have. I've also got Costa in the matchup. I see the fight, fight a little bit closer than the odds, exactly. Just because of how dangerous of an opponent Garcia is, when you think you've got him hurt, that's exactly when he's going to go out there and win the fight. So I do agree with you. I've got Costa. I think the wrestling is going to be important because if he does start to feel uncomfortable on the feet, and that could be even after he has Garcia hurt, he might even want to go for a takedown just to get rid of the Hail Mary opportunity for Garcia. But I agree with you. I've got Costa in the fight. Well, of us going with Melkothi, Melkazil, Costa to get the win some big-time fights. In this card, Matt Joe Selecki is fighting Jakar Close. You're not gonna want to miss it. Keep it locked in with fighting Picks. We always say, Let's get into it. Lightweights at different titrates, and that's chemistry, brother. Mixing it together in the octagon in Austin, we have Jakar Close taking on Joe Selecki and Matt. You opened up our show in the intro saying that this was an interesting fight. And can I explain? I think it's a bad fight. I think it's an awful fight. I disagree for this reason only. I've always felt like your car close is one or two good wins away from at least putting together a decent career. Because you said the same thing about 7-4-1 Veronica Hardy. I'm not right about everybody, Craig. No, what I said about Hardy was, she was a fighter who felt like she was two years away from being two years away. But Jakar Close, at one point in his career, was looked at as at least a promising prospect who could have a really good future in the division. And I know not only injuries have derailed that, just inactivity throughout a large part of the last few years has been a problem for Jakar Close, but he has always had a pretty good game for the lightweight division. He's somebody who doesn't completely overextend himself on his boxing combinations, has a good boxing game, I will say, he might not wow you with the volume at a lot of points because we're going to talk about Rob Font a little bit later on the card, right? Rob Font, when he has things going, he's going to wow you with not only the power, but the volume too. Jacar Close is kind of like a bigger, more discount version of Rob Font when you think about it. He's going to use a lot of the boxing. He can use the volume. He does have a very nice jab too. And I think that jab is going to be important in this matchup against Selecki. Now I've sold jacar Close as a fighter who can go out there and be exciting. Joe Selecki a little bit tougher to do that about, right? Because the ideal Joe Selecki Selecki fight is he wants to get on top his of his opponent be that wet blanket right and really draw the fight out of them and hopefully at some point they kind of submit under the pressure of Joe Selecki and that's why this fight S- is such a difficult one to predict because it really is a story of two completely different styles and two completely that. different fighters. If Close wins this fight he's going to act like the ground is lava not let his back touch the mat whatsoever and really stick the jab in Selecki's face and use some of those longer range weapons that we know he can use but if Selecki is able to get that top position he could slowly suck the life out of your Selecky's a little bit like that kind of cutscene type song, one note by tenacious D because he's one note. And it's one hit, one kill jiu-jitsu now. He's one of the stronger representers of Jim O. And he fights pretty well like John Salter. And you might have remembered Salter from his earlier time in the UFC. Or him with Bellator. where he got close to the ring, but he never was able to capture it. But Joe Selecki really does work in his wrestling to get you down to the mat to work his submission game. You saw that his last time out against Carl Deaton. Now, that fight was on short notice. Deaton accepted it on a little over a week's notice replacing Benoit Saint-Denis. Yes, all that hotness. And Joe Slecki was able to go out there and absolutely put away Carl Deaton with his takedowns. And Deaton's takedown defense here and there, I forgot about that fight. I did. I really did. I, I thought Joe Slecki's last fight was against Alex De Silva. A majority decision win where Alex De Silva looked pretty darn good with his striking. And Slecki, yeah, he did a little bit of grappling, but his wrestling and his control time, they didn't really do a whole lot with it. So Selecky's a little bit like another fighter on this card and Sean Brady to where the grappling's really good, the wrestling's really okay. And the striking's really the one thing I will say that kind of modest. differentiates them is Joe Selecki's big issue is the grounded pound isn't necessarily there, right? Like outside of the big submissions, it is difficult Sha- for him to make up difference, right? Like Sean Brady, Sean at least Brady play as a has and pound. volume in boxing on the feet. Joe Selecki is a positive striker in the UFC, but I don't bring up strike rates all that often. Joe Selecki's strike rate, strikes, significant strikes landed per minute to absorb per minute, two point two four. Less 1.53. He doesn't throw a lot of strikes, but he doesn't get hit very often. Those numbers. May look like, oh, Joe like Selecki spends a lot of time striking. No, no, no it's a it's- lot of time on the map, but regardless, he doesn't do a lot of striking in general. And that's the thing about Selecki and why a lot of these rounds are kind of difficult to judge, right? Because let's say Close is able to go out there, land really nice jabs, land a couple straight twos down the middle, and land good damaging shots, but maybe not a knockdown, right? Let's say he gets taken down for a minute and a half by Joe Selecki. Even if Selecki has that top position, he's not all that well-known for the ground to pound, and that's why it might make the rounds really difficult to judge, because he'll get all that top control, but... What is he doing with it outside of the submissions? That's really always been the issue for Selecki. And there's going to be a lot of big time comparisons. There's so many different parallels on this card. When you look at Virchikar Close, in 2005 he was a Michigan State champ in wrestling at South Haven High School. He then went to wrestle for North Idaho College, JUCO. Matt, there's another fighter on this card that I'll talk about a little bit later on that also went to North Idaho College for his okay. wrestling. So Jakar Close's basis is in wrestling. He left wrestling to start doing the mixed martial arts, like the other fighter did, and really was able to go off to the races. When you look at Close, a lot of striking. It is very good, as you mentioned, but we'd be remiss if we didn't mention he had that hard fight against Benil Dariush. That's the one, the Anik DC Rogan meme. But it's also the fact that Close was then supposed to go out and fight who? jeremy stevens you had the shove you had the concussion issues the whiplash the herniated disc closes out for a very long time and then he came back so from 2020 to 2022 he was inactive he fights brandon jenkins and jenkins wasn't very good in the no, ufc he was a big favorite he's kind of brandon jenkins is clumped into that charlie antiveros land in my mind if you were good outside of the ufc and in the ufc It happened. You were not as good. So he gets the win there. Close goes out his last time out. He beats Rafa Garcia. That's a really good win because Garcia is close as equal pretty well stylistically with the boxing, with the work that he's able to do on the outside, bridging the gap as well. And Close put a pace on further in his career after the injuries. But I did listen to an interview that Jakar Close did with, and I'll make sure that I throw it out there. Combat sports on Fanatics View. It's a mouthful. With James Lynch. He was out for six months on the sidelines after he tore his ACL. Had to come back to it. A lot of recovery time out of the MMA lab. And he said, and I quote, when he was looking at this fight with Joe Selecki, Hadn't heard of him before. Uh, His manager offered him. Manager managed both guys. Uh, That's always weird. But Close fought a lot of guys that his manager in a previous life had managed as well. So an interesting one there for Close. Close is a slight favorite in the matchup at 35 Obviously, there's so many. This guy fought that guy, and that guy fought this guy that are on this card. So Spider-Man memes abound. A lot of lightweights. But Trakara Close, again, he has fought some guys that are on this card. Namely, one half of the co event, he beaten one of the most controversial split decisions over Bobby Green. As I said, Close's favorite, Selecki the underdog. We have a look at the topology votes. Matt, surprise that's there to you. I think Trakara Close would have beaten Joe Selecki badly in 2018. Now, it's not as easy of a fight. Yeah. But I think the fans are going to have them. I'm going to say over under 80% close. I think it'll be under 80%, but it'll be the favorite. It's under 1,446 total votes, 68% close, 77% by decision. For the 32% that have Selecki, 70% by decision and 17% by submission. So, Matt, the fans are saying decision, so that would ultimately be a very boring fight. Who do you have yeah. in this one? The thing that I do like about Chakar J- close to striking is he's not going to overextend himself a ton, right? He's not going to go for those big overhands. He's not going to lunge in with massive hooks that could allow Joe Selecki to duck underneath and make the takedowns a little bit easier. And that's why I do have close in this matchup. I agree with you though. I think back 2018, he might be a minus, you know, 200, 210 favorite, but now the fight is closer because if he is in some of those more compromising positions, I don't know if he's going to be able to fight his way out of them, but I think he's going to be able to do enough on the feet to get the judges on his side. I do find this is probably going to go to a decision though either way i was so excited about joe selecky coming into the ufc off of dana white's contender Great series raffler. you look at the run that he had coming in you saw that nicholas mata fight where he was winning until he wasn't that's pretty well every nicholas mata fight too but you go down through it beating austin hubbard by submission beating jim miller in a boring fight losing to jared gordon in a fight that i thought that like had won but Alex- still beating jim miller's impressive you know yeah, and you're right. It wasn't a good fight. He just had a lot of top control. But again, we always say it about Jim Miller. When you beat we him, don't. normally you go on to do. We great don't. Things. I do. When you beat Jim Miller, that's a massive name to have on your resume. That does bolster your profile quite a bit nobody's going to their friends and saying, hey, cancel your plans, Joe I Selecki's fighting. I didn't say that. I said, normally, when you fight Joe Miller, it makes people like us think, hey, you have a win over Jim Miller. He's when one I, of the when I look at it for Selecki, he reminds me a lot of another guy that's on the UFC roster, up a weight class, Preston Parsons, who owns his own studio, who's a jiu-jitsu master. But the thing about Selecki is, out of those 13 wins, you look at the submissions, six of them are by rear naked choke. Parsons will mix in a lot of power shots to close the distance to get his grappling going. Slecky will kind of throw a lot at you to then mix it in. I think Close can hit him up enough, and make that count in the judges' minds to then maybe go out there and get a decision win. So I do have close in this matchup, Matt also going with the man out of Michigan who's got a tattooed on his pectoral. But this is a very interesting fight, so I'd really like to get your thoughts out there. Maybe this is a fight where close slows down a lot off that ACL injury, and 35 really does hurt. Looking, yeah. 35 at 155, and he's PFL bound, like a Jeremy Stevens, Matt. Really interesting one in this matchup. Again, let us know you have. Keep it locked in with fight Apex, as we always. Say. Let's, Let's get, get into, into it. it. A head-scratcher of a UFC debut coming up this weekend. It's a prove-it fight for the savage Zach Reese coming off a big win on Dana White's contender series, undefeated as a pro. Nearly undefeated as an amateur, but a lone loss in 2012 to Kevin Holland has really shown that Zach Reese is a special fighter. And if you look at it for him, he gets this opportunity against fan favorite Cody Brundage. And I say that with a giant caveat. Social media turns house cats into lions. And you might have seen my tweet about that yesterday. But for Cody Brundage last time out, wasn't that long ago against Jacob Malkoon. The odds in that fight, Matt, they weren't close at all. And Brundage was a plus 410 underdog. He goes out there against Malcoon, gets the first takedown. They scramble a bit, then gets into another advantageous position. He's almost into mount. Malcoon gets the back. And listen, did Cody Brundage throw the illegal strikes? No. Jacob Malcoon did, and the referee in the commission made the decision to call that one a DQ and not an no contest. But for Brundage, you listen to an interview that he did with JHK in the All-Star MMA, and I felt awful, man. People on social media... The negative folks, they suck. And you could tell that they got to Cody Brundage. He deleted his social media for a while. You guys out there that go after athletes and people that are actually doing things in your lives, you should really just shake your head and think about the things and the mean things that you write to these guys. Because it wasn't Cody Brundage that did it. He had a stinger. He really did have a hard time, nerve issues in that side of his body for a while after those strikes to the back of his head. So you might have think maybe he was faking it or the doing this, doing that. You guys suck. Overall, though, Cody Brandage, we say this in every single fight. Things go really well until they don't, just like a Nicholas Mata fight. And we remember it the William Knight fight on Contender Series. Cody Brandage is beating William Knight soundly. And then he gets finished. There's other fights. The Dolce Lungyambula fight. He's losing it really badly. Hail Mary shot. He drops Dolce. And listen, or he's able to go out there. Hail Mary shot. Guillotine. He finishes him. You remember the fight where he's able to go out there against Sean Gore and finish him? Impressive. That was the one I was trying to reference. But even in the string of three losses before his last fight against Mal Kuhn, Shechuk going out there gets the takedown, gets a little over antsy, gets finished as it goes on. The fight against Vieta drops him early. And then he pulls guillotine, doesn't get it done, gets choked by the arm triangle. Then he goes out there against Shadriquez Dumas. Decent first round, but that was a short notice fight. And he looked incredibly labored second round, did, third yeah, round. Slow down. He looked really bad. So, Cody Brundage, it is a tide. I'm sure we'll even get negative comments about Cody Brundage that are unfounded out here in the comments section. It's got to be water off of Duck's back. But when it comes down to it, Matt, Zach Reese, I said he loses to Kevin Holland in 2012. Then he comes back in 2017 and starts Big fighting. Foul. He has a fight. Then he has another layoff till 2020. And listen, from April 2021 until now, his pro career starts off 6-0, all first round finishes. You you can find all of his fights, plus his amateur fights, out there on YouTube as well. He goes out there and acts like a buzz on a lot of these. Now, great moving forward. His takedown defense isn't all that great. He's awesome moving forward. He likes to throw spinning shots. He likes to throw jump knees. Takedown defense again, not that good. But He's got really good jiu-jitsu off his back. And you see, you look at who he trains with, like he's mixed it up a lot for this camp. A little bit of Thailand, a little bit of Bangtown And there's a lot of fighters on these card, or this card that have done that as well. But when you look at Zach, at training with Andre Petrowski too, and that was before this fight was announced. He was in Phuket, he was in Thailand at Bang Tao early October. This fight was announced the very end of October. So it's not like he was training with Petrovsky to early for Brundage. And likewise, Brundage wasn't getting ready to fight Zach Reese. It's about a month training camp for both of these guys. But when you watch Zach Reese at War Training Center with guys, a little bit of Morono, a little bit of Trevin Giles, and you see what Zach Reese can do in the cage. Tricky side widener stance, and he likes to kick a lot. He reminds me at middleweight being 6'4 with a 77 inch reach. Like Daddy Long Daniel Spitz, and that's a throwback for a lot of people. Big heavyweight, Dan Spitz is able to get a lot of early finishes. Dan Spitz in the UFC, do you remember who he fought, Matt? You might remember one I of don't. the fights. He got knocked out by Wald Harris. He knocked out Freight Train, Anthony Hamilton, one of your favorites. And then he lost to Tanner Bowser, and he had an earlier loss as well. But Dan Spitz, it didn't work out. Zach Reese is really good. I don't know how it's going to work out for him in the UFC. I do think he falls into that category of it could all really work out well. It could work out, like, not that well. He's a high-ceiling, low-floor kind of fighter, if you will. Because when Reese is able to move forward, and that really has been the case throughout all of his professional fights so far. Most of them. Most of them. When he's able to move forward, he's an interesting fighter. Because for as long-rangey as he is, he does like to go into that clinch and throw a lot of the knees up the middle. And he does like the tie clinch. He'll throw elbows over the top, too. And it's interesting, because for a guy who likes to occupy either very long or very close fighting someone like Cody Brundage is going to be interesting because Cody Brundage can excel at that middle range with some of his own boxing so if he can keep Reese off him with some of those bigger power shots it will limit Reese's offense at least what he can throw moving forward but the kicking range I think is going to be really interesting too and if Brundage can use the takedowns to at least start to diminish Reese, because I do think on the feet is the more complete fighter in terms of what he's able to throw but Brundage's power is going to be able to equalize a lot of these exchanges if he can make him pay but again I think the range is going to be the most interesting thing in this fight because at the longest range, Rish should be able to have success, but I do like his tendency to go into that clinch. It is a little bit unorthodox for a guy who fights as rangy as he does, but on switch stances, sometimes he likes to throw a punch he'll switch stances, then kind of reach sometimes, but the reaching can leave him open to getting countered, and, and especially by a guy like Brandon. And he's one of those guys who's feeling this card, he's really, really tall, his hands aren't up all that high, they're pretty and darn low. He fights tall to all the benefits and the negatives, right? Yeah, and you look at it, I mean, that could help. His takedown defense, War Training Center, as I mentioned, Giles Morono, Auntie Barrows used to train out of there. Joseph Holmes, another middle Auntie Barrows late- <laughs> has gotten so many shout outs out of that gym as well. And if you look at it for Reese, you can go back and watch a lot of these fights. So he beats Eli Aronov over on Contender Series. Reese favored favorite in that fight. He looked worlds apart from uh his opponent. He was able to do a lot of damage in that. When you go back through, he beat Aaron Phillips, who was on the Ultimate Fighter season 29. The Alaskan Bullworm didn't go well for him in that one. Reese is able to get the guillotine in. He's able to get the finish, and his opponent, Phillips, was completely out. You look at the fight against Britain. You look at the fight against Phillips. I mean, it's just a lot of early finishes, a lot of flurry, a lot of flash, a lot of flair. Even in the fight against Phillips, the referee's hair, he looked like Carlos Boozer. Somebody drew that one on there. But before that, uh, Zulfagani and then Jamaze, those guys weren't all that good. Again, the fight against, uh, I'll call him Zulf. Again, Zolf, that one was at 205. Zach Reese weighed 198.6, so he's not a 205-er, he's a 185-er. He did fight Kevin Holland all those years ago in 2012 at welterweight. Zach Reese at the time, 167 pounds, so pretty wild there, but Reese, a really flashy, really interesting prospect. The other thing about Brundage, the back-of-the-head type of stuff, he said, and I quote, when he was talking to JHK, he was out for five weeks after that, not training, and he said, I had a slight tear in my spine. I don't know if it was from the strikes, but he got that taken care of, and now he's coming into this one. So in the matchup, Matt, Zach Reese, a really big favorite. you have a yeah. look at the topology votes. Fans are with the are. I'm going to say over, under, 75% Reese. I'll say under. I think they're over, way over. 1,412 total votes, 91% Reese, 59% by knockout, 22% by submission. For the 9% that have Brundage, 38% by decision, 22% by submission, 25% by knockout. And for Alex Morono, again, you train with him. You're also the commentator for Fury, so you're probably going to talk up your guy. But he spoke so highly Zach Reese, and even in the fights where Reese wasn't utilizing his, his jiu-jitsu, he was saying, wow, this guy is really good off his back. I don't like the takedown defense. I think Cody Brandish beat Zach Reese in this fight. The takedown defense does worry me, don't get me wrong. And I worry about the Shane Carwin effect, right? You have all these first-round stoppages. How are you going to look after you get over that hump? And if you have faced adversity? Because how is he going to look if he is defending those takedowns? Because they're going to make him work at a very high level, especially against a guy like Brandich. You can see that. And again, when you're an amateur, it's three three-minute rounds and if you watch this fight against parker didier parker didier in that one he gets a rear naked choke finish in the first round parker's going for all the takedowns and zach reese has a hard time getting off the cage it's not just in that fight in 2020 2021 but he has a hard time getting off the cage of points you talked about the good tie clinch but when you're always trying to go for a tie clinch what happens when your hands are high you got to figure out your base and sometimes guys can break it and then go low for takedown. So Parker tires out after three minutes of action. And in the second round, after the takedown attempts and the clinches, then it's Reese kind of pulling away with it. I, so. I just think some of those attacks up the middle are going to be able to deter yeah. Cody Brundage enough so that he can't shoot for a high volume of takedowns. I think he's going to get one throughout the fight. I don't think uh, Zach Reese is going to be immune to them all of a sudden. But I do think the overall striking of Reese will get to Brundage. But this is a big fight for him to take in his debut because Brundage is by far the biggest test he'll have. Yeah, it is a big-time matchup, Matt, in this loaded middleweight division at this point, Matt, with Sean Strickland as a champion. think it's possible. We're on the pick you've got the savage reese making his debut i'm going with cody brandage let us know in the comment section we have down below some big time fights in this card Darius taking on and at the top you're not going to want to miss it keep it locked in with fight night picks we always say let's, let's get, get into, into it, it. <laughs> let's get into it uh fight that julia vila called for in 2016 on the internet finally materializes in 2023 we have the recent mom raging panda julia avila she's gonna be taking on a cupcake misha tate also A mom. Matt, when we look at this matchup for Julia Avila, she's been out of action for quite some time. Her last matchup, she took on Yulia Stolyarenko. She got the win. That was back in 2021. She tore ACL. And while she was away, I listened to an interview that she did with who was it, Matt? Do you think it was James Lynch or JHK? One of the two. It was JHK with the All Star MMA. And she said that in the time away, she said to her husband, well, it's now or never, and they decided they were going to have a kid, so she did have a kid, made her acting debut in The Time Away in a movie that's going to be on Prime coming out in December, so look her. out for that, and I'll mention the name in a bit. But Julia Avila, getting back into it, 9-2, and two, the overall career record for her. The one loss, she did lose to Shajira Eubanks. She looked good in the, what was it, second round, bad in the first round, really bad in the third yeah. round. 10-8 out there for Eubanks, and if you look at the other loss... One to Eubanks by decision. The other one, I actually did something weird in the graphics this week, and I put an asterisk by the one lost by TKO. She lost to a fellow Allen, Marcia Allen with Invicta. And if you watch that fight, it's inside of the first 30 seconds. Allen throws one kick to the body. Avila blocks it with her left hand. She throws another kick. Avila blocks it with her left hand and then she starts shaking it out. One of her fingers went as more crooked than my pinkies and it was completely crooked and broken. Avila had a game face on, but the referee and the commission and the doctor said, no, you can't fight anymore. So it is a loss by TKO because her finger decided it wanted to snap. So for Avila... Very tough, we know that, not just from being a mom, but from breaking a hand or finger and wanting to continue. But other than that, Julia Avila is a really interesting fighter because the jiu-jitsu's always Break been good, yeah. the wrestling's good, the striking's very good, and she will throw really good blitzes that can hurt her opponent. Remember that fight against Gina Mazzani, where she was able to not just hurt Ew. Gina in the second round, because is a mythical fighter in the first round, but Avila looked really good in the first round. This gets me to the core issue, though. It's like Anthony Davis, right? You know those start-bench-cut debates? Yeah, but that guy won a title. Hear me out. Misha Tate was a champion, and this is what I'm getting to. Anthony Davis used to be in start bench cut debates with Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic. Now he's in those debates with Bam Adebayo and Damana Sabonis. And for Misha Tate at this stage of her career, it's a bit of an interesting fight, and I do like Julia Avila as an opponent for her coming back off of such a long uh, layoff, because Misha Tate isn't the fighter that she once was. You mentioned how Avila called her out all the way back in 2016. It was it was just as Tate had retired but after said, she was champion. That's what I was about to say. Misha Misha Tate had that really bad performance against Amanda Nunes, right? And that was before knowing what we know now about Amanda Nunes, how she is kind of an all-time great and amazing and everything. But remember the performance she had against Raquel Pennington, where she just got out muscled in most positions, and she wasn't able to have success in those traditional Misha Tate successful areas, which is getting the wrestling, having that top position. She has a really good half guard, uh, really good top control from that position, able to land good ground and pound. But Raquel Pennington was really able to get out of a lot of those spots, and I felt like other opponents after that fact were able to replicate some of that success. But this fight, more than anything, comes down to who is able to, to, get that top pressure? Because I think both fighters excel in such a way in that spot to where Misha Tate is great in the top spot, but we have seen her struggle off her back against other wrestlers when they're able to and get her there. for Avila, the weird thing about this, both these women are ranked in the top 15, somehow, some way. Misha Tate, if you look at it, the five on right, in right now. one and four, the Lost Man, Ana Nunez over seven wow. years ago. The loss to Raquel Pennington. She takes a really long time off. She beats Marion Renault, Then gets a main event against Ketlin Vieira. It wasn't the best uh maybe you said that tate won what round three and four maybe if that she then goes on to fight lauren murphy it didn't work out all that great now there's an asterisk because as i said there's seven fighters on this card moving up down in weight missed weight or had a catch weight their last time out misha tater last time out fought at 125 lost to lauren murphy now she's moving back up to bantamweight for julia avila a really time off geologist by day mma by night all day and if you look at it for avila had her kid in october of last year so avila she even said it in the interview with jhk and i've seen she's posted on instagram too way 225 after her child was born so a lot of losing the weight but this camp was really focused and a lot of it focused on skills even when she was pregnant even the i think she even said the day like she delivered she was in a gym like working out so This lady's wild. And yeah. so is Misha Tate too. And we've glossed over it, but you've heard it before. Misha Tate took all the time off, had a kid, one championship VP. Like she was out there doing the damn thing out of Extreme Tour. Uh, the movie for Julia Avila, December 1st, called The Squad. It's going to be on Prime, so make sure you check that out. But overall, when I look at this fight, Matt, and I boil it down, first thing, the rankings, as I kind of alluded to, they make no fucking sense. Julia Avila was ranked 15th in 2021, and she beat unranked Yulia Stolyarenko. Today, when she walks into the cage, she's going to be ranked 13th. How does that make sense? makes no sense. UFC rankings. It's just like... They uh, never have, though. Uh, Who's lying is it anyway? You don't they care. don't mean anything. Misha Tate beat Marion Renault a few years ago, and that's what brings her into this one. When you compare their skills, if Misha Tate goes out there and wrestles, she could have a fair amount of success because as good as we said Avila is on the ground, and her jiu-jitsu is very good, her takedown defense isn't all that so. great. Julia Avila is a much better striker than Misha Tate, and that could carry her to win in this. And from what we've seen out of Tate, the fight against Lauren Murphy, Ketlin Vieta, and even some of the later fights when she was at 135, a lot of the striking. So it could be a good one for Avila. Avila is a pretty big favorite, but I'd stay away from this one with the time away from Avila, the ACL injury that she's coming off of, and the recent Tate performances. We look at the topology votes, Matt. I'm going to let you set it because I don't know where they're going to be. I'll put it at 65% for Avila. I'm going to say over... And it is over 1,475 total votes, 76% Avila, 83% by decision. For the 24% that Amisha Tate, 81% by decision. I think Avila can get it done with her striking. She could struggle with some of the takedowns. You saw that in the Eubanks fight. Even in some of her wins, you've seen that as an issue. But I really do like, if you go back and you watch it, her fight making that debut in the UFC against Penny Kianzad. If you can get a decision win there and work some of your striking against somebody who is, and I mean this, world-class and striking Penny Kianzad, then I think that Avila can get this one against Tate. But the time away, the age for both these women, it is a little difficult. I do agree with you, and I do have Avila as the pick, but I gotta be honest, I'm a little bit down on Tate based on that last performance against Murphy because I thought, hey, if anyone was gonna kind of halt the bleeding yeah. in her record, I thought she was gonna be able to use her physicality, go out there and outmatch, wrestle Lauren Murphy, but Murphy really was able to use that striking on the outside to make Misha Tate uncomfortable, <laughs> and I do think Avila's gonna have similar success. And don't forget, Misha Tate was due a comeback fight against Maeda Buena Silva, and Tate pulled out of that fight, so interesting move back up to 135 from each Tate. both of us going with the raging panda not raging ally quinta it's raging panda julia Avila to get the win matt some big fights on this card the next one oh boy Joaquim silva it's an old guy what fight. a fun fight taking on clay guida you're not going to want to miss it keep locked in with fighting a picks we always say let's, so let's get, get into it, into it. it. Like Eric Bischoff, when he went from WCW to WWE. I'm back! Better than ever! My 41-year-old, the carpenter, it's Clay Guida. He's back, and he's going to be taking on Neto BJJ, one of the worst nicknames. Not a good one the great that's pretty bad pitbull's overused but my old gym how about that that'll be my nickname neto bjj joakim silva another full training camp for this one at american top team didn't work out for him his last time the weirdest co-main event ever taking on armand Zarukian. joakim silva a guy who trains out of that gym against the guy who also trains out of that gym being Zarukian. first round all Zarukian with the grappling second round Joaquin Silva cracks him with a he hook does. and nearly knocks him out. Puts him on baby deer legs. Zerukin gets the takedown. Third round, all Zerukin with the takedowns. But Silva gets to come into this one in a bit of an advantageous position because we've seen Clay Guida even recently in a win, I might add, get rocked. I don't know why the referee didn't finish it. And this is against Leo Santos, my guy guida somehow withstands all the punishment all the nonsense and then in the second round guida's able to go out there and get the finish but for clay guida his last time he took on rafa garcia and in that fight clay guida chased a lot clay guida got hit a lot and the biggest thing that i took away from watching not just that garcia fight but if you look at it for clay guida matt he's had so many fights in the ufc a lot how many fights has he had uh i'm gonna say 31 This is going to be his 36th UFC fight. That's wild. His career line, uh, it's not good. 2.63 strikes landed per minute to 3.01 absorbed. To be fair, he's been fighting since BJ Penn was champion. Yeah, he has. At a 33% accuracy clip. And if you go back and watch his last fight when he's taking on Rafa Garcia, it was 141 significant strikes for Garcia to Clay Guida's 63. That's a bad differential. But then you look at it, it's 63 significant strikes on, 252 attempted for 25%. And Guida's always been that Marina Moro's type. Guida's the the poster child of this, and the hair's going everywhere, and it looks like he's doing a lot, and even if he doesn't get a finish, he's busy. Like, you think of the Bobby Green fighter, you think of the fights against Lando Venata, you think of these fights, Diego Sanchez as well. But Guida's last time out showed a little bit of a chink in the armor that way. You're telling me the guy who's almost 42 and he's had 36 fights in the UFC this be might be slowing down a little bit? Wow, who would have thought? Now, that's the thing about Clay Guida. For the longest time, I would say the durability was still pretty good. He matched the activity that he's always been able to have because you bring up the numbers. Yes, he might not be as accurate with some of those numbers, but the fact that he's still able to throw in the 200s for significant strikes is pretty phenomenal just to begin with. And he can go for a lot of takedowns too. It's not just the striking yep. numbers. So that's why these guys both represent very different philosophies. If Clay Green is going to go through there and get a win, it's going to be based on just a lot of activity and probably not a lot of stoppages at this stage of his career, right? He's in the, I'm Andre Arlovsky and I fight to split decision stage of his career, but can Silva go out there and make some of those bigger shots land? Because he is the much more heavy-handed between these two. It is not even close. But the thing about Silva that's always held him back is his activity doesn't really match where his overall, and I haven't even mentioned his BJJ is very good, but his overall striking power, because you mentioned it, he hurts the and he's been able to hurt a lot of these opponents. It's just, can he follow up and do enough to he, go out there and get the stoppage? Joaquim Silva leaves the biggest openings in his striking, he's and if you go there. back and you watch some of these fights, Nasrat Hakpras knocks him over. Ricky Glenn catches him coming in with a counter left hook. It absolutely floors him. And then Joaquim Silva goes out there against Jesse Ronson, your samurai super lightweight champ in Quebec. And he goes out there and he finishes them. So for Joaquin Silva, you saw it not just in his last performance, but coming into the UFC. It's a lot of power. It's a lot of grit. It's a lot of flash. It's a lot of flair. He fights like he's double parked at the apex. He didn't put money in the meter, and he just popped the Viagra before he walked out into the crowd. He's and got things he, to do. He's got he's a bun the in the oven baby. at home. So there's a lot that he's got to <laughs> occupy himself with. So he's just going to wing power shots until it's over and hope it goes well. Or he's got an awkward boner in the back, and he just got finished himself. So Matt... When you do look at this fight, a very different contrast of styles. I want to say this just for the fans out there at home. Clay Guida knocked out the biggest, not even a hype train, but when he beat Anthony Pettis when Pettis is coming into the UFC, Pettis was supposed to beat Clay Guida and then rematch with Benson Henderson, and and it didn't happen because Clay Guida got that win. So go back and watch that, but it has been years. We look at this one, Neto BJJ. Is a massive favorite, it is. and that's scary. We'll have a look at topology votes, see what the fans are thinking. Matt, I'm gonna say over under 70 percent Silva. I think they'll be over. I think it's group think. Oh, 1,491 total votes. 70 percent on Silva. 44 percent by decision. 39 percent by knockout. For the 30 percent that have Guida, yeah, not surprisingly, 76 percent by decision. I have a hard time making a pick on this one, Matt. I really do. I just think Gwina's overall activity is going to get him caught. And maybe the activity does lead him to get a win, but I think it's going to put him in danger quite often. And that's the problem. I think this one's more fair. Over, under, the amount of slaps to his face when he's standing in the zone to get the Vaseline on. And I'm going to say over, under, the slaps. And then the second one, over, under, the amount of burps between the first round and the second round. Four and a half slaps. I'm taking the over. I think that's a decent set. And for burps, one around... I think one's fair too. I'm gonna say over on that. Okay, I there it's you go. Two. Who'd you pick? <sighs> I don't like picking Silva, but I do think the overall power is going to shine through and he's going to hurt Guida at a certain point. Because Guida doesn't get as many successful takedowns as he used to. He's going to use the wrestling, but he does get stuffed an awful lot more than he did earlier on in his career. And I think for those reasons, if Silva is able to maybe defend with a guillotine, make it uncomfortable for Guida, force him to strike a little bit more by using some of those defensive submissions, it's going to make him more available for the power shot of Silva. And that's why I like him in the fight. You don't like picking the Derek Lesners or Derek Lesner. <laughs> The Brock Lesnar's and Derrick Lewis' greatest is. fighter of all time, perhaps of 155. <laughs> and you like to take more of those Swiss Army knife guys that have the wrestling that can work in their boxing, like a Clay Guido. But in this instance, I will He's go- 42, though. It was 41. Well, he's, uh, he's, he's, he's just shy of 42. Days away. Listen, they're putting the candles on, but they haven't lit them yet. Uh, I do have Joaquim Silva in the matchup. It is an interesting one. I do want to hear from the fans on this one because. People like Clay Guida. How can they not? I I love Clay Guida. So I don't like to pick against them, but I'd like to hear what people think on this one. We have some big time fights in the card, Matt. The next one, Kunisariano taking on Dustin Stoitsfist. You're not going to want to miss that. Keep it locked in with Fighting Apex, we always say. Let's get into it. (laughs) been spending most our lives living in a grappler's paradise coming up this weekend we have puna soriano taking on dustin steusvis matt if you don't think i'm excited about this one you got another thing coming when it comes down to this fight matt for puna soriano expectations were high results have been low for dustin steusvis people probably didn't have expectations but mine were incredibly high i remember and he's now in a class of middleweight and class of UFC fighter that I'm going to go this way with. We talked Auntie Veros. We talked Victor Rodriguez. We talked about all these guys that have come into the UFC. They've been punching bags. Did anybody think you were going to go 9 for 9 with Auntie Veros in every prediction but so No, far? but they really didn't have a good run at all. They got finished in fights. Daniel Lacerte is another one of those guys. It's been bad. It's been the opposite of smooth sailing. It's been choppy at best. When you look at Dustin Stoysfuss, he's He's now in this class of fighter, like another middleweight in Dennis Tululin where I go... How did that guy get a UFC win? Dustin Stoicefus has had a bad run in the UFC, I, I would say. You, you look at the five on in, it's one and four. What's a five on in? It's the last five fights, and it's easier to write than last five on the graphic, and that's why I put it. But he fights Kyle Dacus, he gets out grappled. He fights Adolfo Vieira. It's competitive first two rounds. He gets submitted in the third round. He fights Gerald Mearschardt, he gets submitted. He fights Dwight Grant. It's a terrible fight. Not good. And then his last time out, he takes on Abbas Magomedov, and in 19 seconds, he gets front kick. Magomedov gets a main event, and he's sucked ever since. So, Matt, for Struitsfuss, for some reason, we got to be the voice of building him back up. So, let's build him up. This is a guy that had a twister coming into the UFC. This is a guy that was a really dynamic striker to the southpaw stance. This is a guy that would mix that left hand in as a jab and as a... So, that's my right hand, and it's his as well. As a jab and as a right hook. And he was deadly with that. And you saw him slam Joe Pfeiffer, where Struitsfuss was a big favorite on Contender Series 2020. I know Pfeiffer's arm kind of went out of... Out of way, if you will, and that's how Stross was able to win. But lots of people were excited about him coming if into the they UFC. Very much, that wouldn't be good. Now all the hype's gone, and for some reason he's still in the UFC. And for Puna Soriano, you look at it. Contender series was good. He beats Disco. He looks amazing. That's a bonus. Lose to Brennan Allen. Forgivable. But that's what I want to say about both he, of these guys. For having the records that they do and maybe not having as many wins as you'd like, there's always moments in these losses that you can look at and draw some not, positives. Not the Magametta, but the oh by the way, is Magametta's a flashy striker. Well, okay. It is that what it short, is. But... Puna's fight against Nick Maximov was awful, and My I thought goodness. Puna had won it. The Lungyambula fight was really good, and then his last time out against Roman Kapilov. Turns out, Oh, well, Roman's pretty darn good. And that was one of those vs. Southpaw matchups. So this again is one where you might get the switch out of Stoysfus but primarily you could get Southpaw v's Southpaw. However, Stoysfus when he fights Southpaws will switch a little bit more to Orthodox. So look out for that in this one. And I'll throw up a picture from Stoysfus Instagram where he kind of talked about this isn't really the ideal camp. He's a guy that he's out of Pennsylvania, but what's his second language, man? What's his mode de vie. Well, it's not French. Germany. It's German. And listen, you get that Pennsylvania Dutch. You have a lot of people who moved over there. The Travago guy. But when you look at it... He agrees. His life in Berlin. But if you look at it for Dustin Stoesfus, that's his life outside of MMA. He's an interpreter. He went to school in Germany. That he excels in, but he primarily trains in Germany. For this camp, he's been in the States, in Vegas at the PI, at 10th Planet, at some of these different gyms, not at Extreme Torque, because that's been a staple for Puna Soriano, and a lot of fighters out of Hawaii. But the craziest part about this one, Matt, is Soriano, D3, All-American, Wartburg. And you know that wrestling's a hallmark of his game, but we haven't seen a lot of the wrestling out of him. We've seen takedowns defended to where he's become a striker, and yeah, he's had success against guys like Disco and Dolce, that's maybe not the best part of his game. But do you think that could be enough in a matchup like this? Because that's the he thing. Could get it's submitted in this one. But I think his defensive wrestling is good enough to not have to worry about that as much. I do think his wrestling is going to be good enough to at least force Dustin into striking with Puna Soriano, and yes, Dustin throws a higher variety, I would say. His kicks are a lot better, he's better from the outside, but if they do start to have a one-for-one type of exchange, there's no question in my mind who's the more heavy-handed out of these two. What I do have a hard time with, especially with Stoichfus, is when he isn't able to implement his kicks and does have to become a little bit more of a boxer, that's when he can become a little bit more hittable. It- take that time piece and slow it way down because the volume is kind of gone oh, exactly. away. And he's a little bit like Christoph Jaco that way, right? Like Jaco, when he's able to be on the outside, use all four limbs, he is a very complete striker. But when you can start to limit him and deny some of those ranges, it makes him much more available. And if Puna is able to get this into boxing range and start to defend the takedowns by using his wrestling, even if we don't see the offensive side, which you're right, we haven't seen as much, I still think defensively he's going to be good enough to at least force this into a striking exchange. So... For Soriano, Wrestling the Base, Sopa, not a lot of volume, no. decent kicks, a lot of power. Dustin was the background, Luta Livre, one of my favorite martial arts. I always talk about Marco Huas when I say Luta Livre. Uh Claudio Poyas is a guy. And Babalu, remember? Hanato Sobral, he's another one. Tang Soo Do, which is a version of almost Taekwondo. It also comes out of Korea. And, of course, the BJJ. I wish we could see the Streiswitz fight fought like Jonas Bilstein when you see him on the regional scene. But when you look at this one, Soriano, a big favorite. We have a look at the fan vote over on Topology. Surprise to us. It is to you as it always is. I'm going to say over under 77.5% Soriano. I think it's going to be over. And it is big way over. Weapon. 1,432 pers- or 32 votes. 93% of Soriano. 80% by knockout for the 7% that have Streiswitz. 43% by decision. 27% by knockout. Matt, I think Dustin Stroisifus beats Puna Soriano. Going with another big underdog in this card. I got Soriano, yeah. I don't think Dustin's got it. I think Dustin Stroisifus has really good jiu-jitsu. I think it's going to cause Soriano issues. And I think that variety of strikes from Stroisifus is going to be able to win out. I don't think it's going to be an early knockout for Soriano. And Soriano's not a submission artist either. So that that's my reasoning towards a guy like Stroisifus. Going back, and it's. But I still don't know if he's going to be able to This doesn't to happen very often. But there are fighters where I go. It's been so bad in the UFC. Why is this guy around? And then I watch the regional tape, and then I go, okay, yeah, okay, I, I see why. So for Shostov, that really did build it up for me, built a case. But we are split on the pick on this one. I've got the big underdog Shostov, who's one and four in his last five fights. Matt's going with Puna Soriano, who's two and three in his last five fights. So it's been a tough road. Let us know who you have down below in this matchup. Some exciting ones on this card, Matt. Sean Brady's fight. fighting Calvin gastelum a big fight for sure. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks, we always say. Let's, Let's get in. into it. The first defeat and what it tastes like. We also have a guy who's not tasting as much food, moving back down to the division that made him famous, kind of. Matt, coming up this weekend, we have Sean Brady. Now, 15 and one, he was undefeated as an amateur, undefeated as a pro. A 19 fight win streak was snapped by the boxing of Bilal Muhammad. He's going to be taking on the ultimate fighter, winner season 17. Matt, it is Kelvin Gaslam. He won that season at middleweight, which is why I say kind of. He hey, beat Ryan right Hall. Home. But after he got going, he moved down to welterweight. The fans got to know him quite a bit. Now, the weight misses, the fights that were scratched, they were an issue. And if you look at it for Gaslam, he was supposed to be in a big-time spot at UFC 205 against Donald Cerrone. He did not even make it to the scale. So they forced Gaslam back up to 185. He beat... A guy who hunted everybody. Keep the brakes off. Tim Kennedy and Gaslam was then again off to the races. And you saw Gaslam go up. He challenged for the interim middleweight strap against Israel Adesanya, a fight of the year contender there. And Gaslam has had mixed results since. We think of some of the big wins. This fight against Ian Heinisch, where the wrestling shoes were on and on point. We think of some of the losses. But Gaslam, I think it's funny because he goes out there. We remember the clash of heads against Chris Curtis, but we also remember... And listen, you don't want to tip your cap when you get it right. But we said Gaslam, Tricky Silva, when he's in tight, his boxing combinations are some of the best. And he looked amazing in those spots against Chris Curtis. But then he all of a sudden announces, I'm moving back down to 170. And everybody collectively scratched their heads. And then he had a fight booked against Shavkat Rachmanov. The fight was going to take place. He has to pull out due to injury. But now he's back. He's getting ready for it. So fight ready again for Gaslam in this camp. There's another... Actual former champ training with him or around him with Cejudo being Devison Figueiredo, who's in the next fight. Both guys at a fight ready. But for Gastelman's fight, Matt, got to see the weight. But style for style, it's almost his fight to lose too. It is, but at 32 years old, he's been doing this for a lot longer than you might assume. And you bring he's it an up. He's an old 32, like a season, Jose Aldo 33. Uh, the season of the ultimate fighter that you bring up was a long time ago now, right? Like you might not think of season 17, but. Exactly. He's been in the UFC for a decade now. And he's been in a lot of really difficult fights throughout these past 10 years. And he's been main eventing shows and having five round fights for a lot of that time. So for Gaslam, you just wonder about how much he does have left in the tank to go out there and have another big run to the title, right? Because for Sean Brady, I know he didn't look good the last time out, and Brady's an interesting fighter, right? Because he falls into that category of, he is so good at that one thing he does well. When he's able to get on top of his opponent, beat the brakes off them with his ground and pound, loosen them up for submissions, there's not a lot of people who can grapple with him and match his pace on the mat, but we did see, up until the loss, some limitations in that striking game, and we saw some of the red flags start to arise. Now, was it enough for a lot of people to go, hey, Sean Brady's gonna go out there and get stopped? Maybe not for a lot of people, but this is an important fight for him because Gaslam might not be the fighter he was, but he still has a really big name coming back down to this division. And if Brady's able to go out there and beat Calvin Gaslam, maybe it doesn't regain all of the hype he once had. But he's pretty much back to where he was and before his last loss. You look at it for Sean Brady, UFC debut against a former Ultimate Fighter winner as well, the Crusher, Court McGee. And even in the first round of that fight, McGee's doing all right. Brady's doing a decent job striking from the outside as well. Court McGee goes for a kick, and as Brady's sort of retreating, he lands a check left hook and drops Court McGee. His striking looked good there. As it goes along, you think of the Ishmael Nardiev fight, you think of Christian Aguilera, you think of, of course, Jake Matthews, and then Michael Kiesa, where he dominated that fight, Pillar to Post, and like... If you can win that fight against Chiesa, who knows? Now, a lot of fans, of course, had him beat Muhammad, and they were disappointed when we both had Muhammad in that fight. Muhammad won. Can wrestle. But when it does come down to it, Sean Brady, yeah, the one skill is so good. And for Calvin Gastelum, I mentioned earlier on in the show, there was a fighter from Michigan that went to North Idaho College, and he was able to go out there and wrestle a little bit. And it was, of course, Dracar Close. Kelvin Gaslam also went to North Idaho College and wrestled. And then he dropped out. He gets into MMA and he's off to the races. So if you look at it at 185, at 155, you think of some of those fights. And the ones that give me a little bit of pause for Kelvin Gaslam, Robert Whitaker Neil Magny, and of course, Chris Weidman. There's been fights where Calvin Gaslam is a good wrestler on paper. Now, we know Weidman as the All-American for a reason. But when you look at Gaslam, he struggled wrestling against Neil Magny and Robert Whitaker as well in their fights. You go back and you watch those as well. So we'll see how it plays out. Obviously, the Wayans are going to be a question mark for not both guys, but really more so for Kelvin Gaslam in this one. But you know how good the striking can be for Gaslam when it does come up, and you know how good the wrestling can be. And the other thing for Gaslam in this one Sean Brady, Hensel Gracie, Philly, Marquez, MMA, that's been the thing for him, right? So you've always heard about Jonathan Patti leading the boys, but Joe Pfeiffer and everybody that trains out of that gym. Gaslam for this one. Bang Tao throughout the summer. Back at fight ready training with some of the best in the world. So you look at the odds in the matchup. Sean Brady coming back as a bit of a favorite. He was due Michelle Pereira earlier on this year. Forced out due to an injury. He was due Jack Della Madalena in an international fight week. versus sack. That elbow was disgusting. Both would have been great fights, too. Was disgusting. So Brady back after a long time away from that Blomhamid loss. But... He was due back a lot earlier on, too. So you do look at the top all you votes, Matt, here. Surprise does there to you. I'm going to say over, under, I think it's going to be somewhat close. I'm going to say 67.5% Brady. I think it'll be under. And it's the opposite. 1,590 total votes, 58% Gaslam, 45% by decision, 47% by knockout for the 42% that have Sean Brady, 7% by de- 70% by decision. Well, I don't see Sean Brady winning a decision in this fight. And I think for Brady, it's a good thing this fight's three-rounder. I think if it was five rounds, even with the weight thing, I think it would favor Calvin Gastelum. I have Calvin Gastelum in this fight. I hate this fight for Calvin Gastelum at 170, though. I don't... Like, the guy who got forced to move up in weight when he was young, when cutting weight's normally a lot easier for fighters... Got forced out of this weight class multiple so, times. Hold like on. He got to fight Nate Marquardt. For, yeah, and then he had to fight Tim on. Kennedy. So, Tim Ga- uh, Calvin Gaslam, rather, 172.8 pounds against Nico Masoke. You remember him in that fight? He looked amazing. He gets the win in that one. 180 pounds against 170.5 Tyron Woodley. That's wild. Yeah. Like, I just. I would pick Kelvin Gasolim if I had more confidence in him to make 170. I think stylistically he does check a lot of the boxes for how you beat somebody like Sean Brady. He has good takedown defense. I worry about him. If he gets his back on the mat and Brady's on top of him, it's gonna be a difficult fight for Kelvin Gasolim. Like, he has good BJJ, don't get me wrong, but Sean Brady is just a different level when he gets into some of those positions for a lot of these fighters. But I I just don't like the move for 170. So maybe I'll change my mind at question mark kicks. This is like the most question mark kicking type of fight on this card because Gaslam, looking on the scales, I think is going to matter a lot for this one. But I am going to pick Sean Brady, at least as of right now. I'll go with another underdog, Kelvin Gaslam, to get the win. We're split on the pick. Let us know who you have down below in the comments section, Matt. The weights and the changes. I'm excited for this next one. Rob Font taking Ooh. on Devis and Figueredo before the co-main event, a big time matchup. Let us know who you have in these fights in the comments. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks, we always say. Let's, Let's get into it. it. Font gets to welcome in Devison Figueredo to this Bantamweight division. Coming up this weekend, the all-timer flyweight, the champ, it was. Devison Figueredo lost his belt his last time out against, you guessed it, Brandon Moreno. They're the only two that fight in the flyweight division. And now, all of a sudden, Figueredo gets to take on Rob Font. And if you look at our graphic here, you're going to see some asterisks. Let me explain them a little bit. For Figueredo, moving up from 125, where he was the champ. For Rob Font, though, 139 his last time out, but that's not by mistake Rob Font has missed weight before but his last time out it was a short notice call he was supposed to fight Sonya Dong later on in the summer it was a couple of weeks later but Umar Nurmagomedov was out of his fight against Corey Sandhagen so Font accepts the fight against Sandhagen and it did not go all that well so Font he missed the weight in the Marlon Vera fight that fight also didn't go all that well for him but it was a weight his last time out so that's why there's an asterisk now that we have that out of the way Matt but this is a really exciting fight because for Figueiredo coming into the UFC, people might not remember. Figueiredo used to fight outside of the UFC like Joe Anderson Brito's fought his whole life. It's a lot of big time powerful takedowns, low hands, big strikes. And as he's kind of grown up in the UFC at an older age, mind you, because he came in at 32, Sorry, he wasn't 32, he was in his late 20s. But as he's grown up in the UFC, his striking's progressively gotten better. And it's gotten a lot more refined and a lot more technical. And you'll see that from Figueredo training this camp out of fight ready with Henry Cejudo. I wonder if grappling's gonna be a focus of it. It probably will be. But for Figueredo, even in his debut that I went back and I rewatched today... The commentary team couldn't get over the wildness. And they said, in this fight against Marco Beltran, he's got to watch out for the strikes. And yeah, he kind of did, because his hands were down by his side. There were big, powerful takedowns. Beltran had some moments at the end of that second round, or at the end of the first round. And then in the second round, Figueroa drops him, gets on top, and he finishes him. That's my big question for this fight. And I, I assumed you were going to bring this up, so I'm happy yeah, I could be the Beltron fight. No. Rob fought in the fight that's very obvious to go back and look at. is the fight against Sergio Pettis, yeah. right? You look at another guy who was really good at 125, making the move up to 135. Primarily a striker who can get it done on the mat. But I think the big difference between these two is... Sergio Pettis at 135 doesn't have a ton of pop on his shots, right? He can use his kicks and For whatnot. Or Gucci would beg to differ. Devison Figueredo destroys people with one punch. They are not comparable, Sergio Pettis and Devison Figueredo. My question is, though, is Figueredo's power going to translate... Up at 135, because Rob Fawn has been susceptible to a lot of big punchers at this weight class. Don't get me wrong, that normally has been the thing that kind of holds him back from being truly elite in the weight class. But if he could go out there and really stick the jab in Figueredo's face and make him uncomfortable, and maybe not just eat some of the big power shots, but make Figueredo pay for getting out of position on some of those, then I think Rob Font still has all of the tools required to go out there and get the win. But Figueredo is such an interesting case because at 35, this might be his only kind of true run at 135, right? If he really does. Does want to become a champ, champ, move up to 135 and become champion? You wonder about how many opportunities he's going to have to lose outside of the title picture. So, this really is an important fight for moving up in weight because beating raw Font does great things for you. You're going to fight one of the top contenders in the 135 pound division. It's a truly competitive division, too. So, any fight is going to be a fight of the night or co main event, possibly main event type fight. So, I just think for Figueredo, he has all the tools to move up and have success at 135. And the fact that he has kind of generational power at flyweight should mean that it should uh, move up. But I think that's the biggest question surrounding this is whether or not he can hurt Ralph Font with some of those bigger counter shots. And Font's been in some wild fights. Six bonuses for him inside of the UFC. You see the difference in height, the difference in reach. It's going to be three and a half inches of reach and three inches of height. They go to Rob Font, and if you look at it, I mean, Figueredo's fought bigger guys at 125. Brandon Moreno's 5'7". He doesn't really have a long reach, though. Marco Beltran was also 5'8", just like Rob Font. And Figueredo was able to figure out the distance. At times, it looked like Beltran was able to land some nice shots, but Figueredo was able He's to do a lot. quite a bit of damage. Another big thing in this fight, we talk about three rounds versus five rounds. This is Figueredo's first three-round fight, Since he fought Tim Elliott in 2019. That must be a relief. It definitely has to be. Because for a guy like that at 125, the weight cut's taxing enough. We saw him miss weight in the first title shot against Joseph Benavidez. But in this one, 135, I don't know what the weigh-ins are going to be like for him. But it's probably still going to be tough, even though 10 pounds, but it's lower weight classes. You look at it for figure 802, and they build him as a kung fu and Muay Thai fighter coming into the UFC. So... But he does have a weird stance, right? Like, Figueredo is kind of caught between mixed martial arts because he has kicks, but he's a lot more boxing heavy when you think about the success he has on his feet. Baby thrown out with the bathwater because he throws his arms. Exactly, out he but sick. he's got kind of low hands. He leans back a little bit. He is kind of in and out, almost taekwondo. But he throws in combinations sometimes. Like Figueroa really is a unique fighter, and that's probably why he became champion. And is one of the better <laughs> fighters to ever fight at flyweight. But I'm really interested to see how he transitions up because I always thought a fun fight would have been when him and Pyotr Gaon were both champions. Have them kind of do a champ v. champ fight. And for Figueroa, if he can look good against Frolov, think about how many fun fights at bantamweight you can have with Figueroa. There's a ton of fresh matchups you can have that are really good fights there are and you already mentioned it and I, I kind of want to do it here the Sergio Pettis fight I tend to talk about it a lot when I talk I, about that's Rob why Font. I was surprised you did it no it. but it was the reason why I took Font to beat Adrian Yanez and you, I was on an island and everybody gave me a hard you time you really like to pat yourself on the back no one, no huh? no but hear me out there's there's a reason why it gives me a little bit of pause here Yanez is one of those guys really good boxing combinations decent power that he can mix in but he tends to have a hard time in the first round. Devison Figueiredo has good first round. So he's not one of those guys that has to a ease himself in. And Sergio Pettis is another one of those guys that tends to ease himself into a fight. Whereas Devison Figueiredo, from the time they say go, he goes out there and he's working hard for it. And I think that three rounds is going to benefit him. Now, you look at the odds in this one. Font, Font's a slight favorite, I guess. You have a look at the topology votes. Matt, surprise us there to you. I'm going to say over under 70% Figueiredo. I think Font's going to be a favorite slightly 1598 total votes so the fans showed up 54% font 69% by decision for the 46% that have Figueredo 51% by decision 20% by submission 20% by knockout they're never even and they never add up to 100% on topology but they're pretty darn close so the fans have fun ever so slightly they think eight oh can maybe get some finishes out there the way that I look at this fight is, a lot of the grappling success Figueredo tends to have, it's not from his own takedown entries, at least at the UFC level. It's a lot of his opponents go for the takedown, he has great defensive submissions, and he's great at scrambling after the fact when his opponent goes for the takedowns. I just don't know if Rob Font's going to put himself in a lot of those positions, so at least that should negate the grappling advantage Figueredo, I believe, has in this fight. He has great submissions, his guillotine is absolutely insane, and on the feet, I do think the overall activity of Rob Font's going to be important, but the thing that really does make me hesitate, even though I do have Rob Font in the matchup, is he doesn't respond to damage nearly as well as he used to, and we have seen his face take a lot of damage through a lot of these longer fights, and if Figueredo can start to land some real consistent power shots from the outside, maybe we do see Rob Font's face start to swell up and you have issue with some of it. Yeah, the Jose Aldo fight, the Marlon Vera fight, Corey Sandhagen. That fight wasn't a great fight. Corey Sandhagen, I was going to say, didn't do as much damage. Yeah. 50-45s out there, but it wasn't really the greatest fight to go back and watch. I'll go with Deficit Figueredo in this one, make it another underdog. I think he's going to be able to get it done with some of that nasty power that he's got and I think the wrestling could play a factor in this fight. So Matt, we're splitting on another one. I'm going Devison Figueroa. You're going with Rob Font. Let us know who you have down below in the comments section. We're getting ready for the short notice—nine days notice—for Jalen Turner to replace Dan Hooker to take on Bobby Green. Let us know who you have. Keep it locked in with Fight Apex, Picks, as we always say. Let's get into it. notice Jalen Turner gets to replace. Dan Hooker jumped the line to take on King Bobby Green in a matchup for the Stars. This one in Austin. And I couldn't be more excited about it. When you look at Bobby Green and his last couple of fights, you remember that crazy no contest against Jared Gordon. It was pretty unfortunate the way that that one ended. He's able to go out there. His next fight, he takes on Tony Ferguson and submits him. Who would have thought that Bobby Green would beat Tony Ferguson by submission? Wasn't on my bingo card. And then his last time out finishes Grant Dawson very, very quickly. Gets another fight this quick. So from main event to co-main event, originally do Dan Hooker. Now he gets Jalen Turner. And for Jalen Turner, I've seen you commenters out there on our page. I don't know what fights you guys watch. You probably don't. But when it does come down to it for Turner one of the better 13 and seven records that you're going to see out there and people i think are forgetting about that five fight win streak finish streak that jalen turner went on really did show that hey that success that he had on the regional scene it really has translated well and if you look at it for turner's last couple of times out lose the chintzy split decision against dan hooker lose a chintzy split decision to matouch gamrot and now he's kind of fan himself needing to build himself back up again so green's on top of the mountain Turner somewhere there as well, and it's an interesting fight for both of these guys stylistically because for Bobby Green, you know how good the boxing is out of the orthodox stance, doesn't throw a lot of kicks. For Jalen Turner, southpaws gets. Throws a lot of kicks on the outside. One of the bigger guys for this weight class. And of course, we said this for a lot of fighters on this card. And Jalen Turner, it needs to be mentioned. His last time out in July, International Fight Week. 158 pounds for 155. He missed weight there. Gotta worry about that. And so you do have to worry about it Because he's so, huge for the weight class. Turner and in his losses. He's lost to good fighters. Matt Frivoli got out-wrestled. You think of the fight against Vicente Luke at 170. It is what it is. But... Now another opportunity against a bigger fighter as well. But that's always been the thing about Jalen Turner is can he do enough with those significant moments and not give up enough outside of those really big moments because the defensive wrestling has been an issue for him. He has good defensive submissions I would say yep. but the thing is sometimes he'll go for those over just digging for underhooks and trying to defend the takedown for defen- or for defending the takedown's sake and if he's not able to really get a reversal off his back or create some of that separation we have seen him get held down in the past but even in some of those losses like he had get. Rod hurt with some big shots in that fight. And that's where the defense of Bobby Green, I think, in this matchup is going to be so interesting because he loves that shoulder roll. We're all going to talk about it. But Turner's a fighter who, if he's able to faint from the outside because of his range, he might be able to make Bobby Green move that half second too early. And if he's able to make him move early, he might be able to counter him with some of those longer range shots down the middle. And again, Bobby Green has fought everybody to this point. He's been in the UFC forever. You look at the wins, you look at the losses, and he was never able to get some of those marquee quality. Wins to boost himself back up again. But you've seen that in the last couple. He's been able to beat ranked opponents, and even in some of these losses, Bobby Green against Drew Dober. Green's winning the fight. He's backing away to the offside, and Drew Dober hits him with a long extended hook and it drops him, it finishes him. That's all she wrote. If you do consider it for both of these guys, I find it really interesting. Now, I hate to do this, and it's funny because I listened to the Friday feedback of the Ryan Russell podcast today, and he's like, listen he gets a terrible amount of anxiety and doesn't like to talk about things if or games or anything if he's never watched it. I haven't watched them, but I saw it, to, and that's the big one. I saw today that Jalen Turner did an interview on a podcast that I hadn't heard about until today. Rampage Jackson has a podcast with Ryan Sheckler. I didn't know it. Jackson podcast. Ryan Sheckler has 2 million Instagram followers. I remember Ryan Sheckler being the kid on Tony Hawk Underground 2... I didn't even know who he was until... right Yeah, was. and Ryan Scheckler is aged... He's 33. Is he like the I'm from 29. Ridiculousness? No. Oh. But he's 33, I'm 29, and I went on a big thing about Ryan Sheckler. He's a born-again Christian. He battled alcoholism, but he has aged tremendously from what he used to look like. But Jalen Turner talked briefly about this fight in the last nine days. I say that I haven't watched it because I worked all day. But also, Bobby Green did like a two-hour bit on their podcast, and I haven't listened to it yet, but I will. So I'm throwing that out there. Before we do question mark kicks, I'll get the time to, to read about it and listen about it, but I didn't have the time when I was doing the fight study and this and that. We have a look, Matt. The odds Turner is favored, even though he takes this fight on nine days notice. I throw it on over to you folks out there. YouTube community tab, Matt. The folks have shown up through the votes out there earlier on today. 893 total votes, 61% go. Now it's over a thousand. 62% going with Jalen Turner. In the comments, Matt, we have crazy Peto saying, Turner's finish over Adele legit looked like when a is feeding on mice, the way he stuck in so fast. Dropped him, gets on top, gets the guillotine, and it's all she wrote. And Matt Bradriddell taking a step away. Uh, Niall is saying, Bobby wins. He'll teach another kid a lesson. Uh, Gigi's saying, crazy how majority see Jalen winning. Bobby's way more consistent in striking. Bobby can hang with the best in the world. I see Bobby taking a decision and fighting poor next. I wanted to comment and say, did you watch the Drew Dober fight? But I didn't. And I'll go with a couple more here, Matt. Uh, Bilbo Swaggins said, watch his interview with Rampage. May give you insight on what's going on mentally. I saw your comment earlier this morning, and then I saw it was an hour and 54 minutes, and I thought, I'm working. I can't watch that. Uh, One more. UFC gambling degenerate. It's Bobby all day. Jalen is trash. I did comment, and I said, really? A ranked fighter is trash? I'm getting sick and tired of the internet, Matt, if people haven't uh, found it out already. But who do you have in this fight? Because most of the fans have Jalen Turner. I do have Jalen Turner, but Bobby Green has an X-Factor that we haven't really talked about much. So let me just mention it briefly. We've seen a lot more of his offensive wrestling at this stage of his career. And that's the thing about Green. He has had multiple iterations, right? Like he fought Dustin Poirier at UFC 199. That was a really long time ago, guys. Like Dustin Poirier became a superstar and lost it all within that time. So I think for Bobby Green, if he's able to go out there and use his boxing and a lot of the wrestling, like it's gonna give him a chance to win i just think he's gonna get hit by one of those long range counter shots on the outside and it might be a case of green looks good until he doesn't i just worry about his susceptibility to getting hit by some of those shots i got jalen turner as well i think the kicks from that southpaw spot they will be able to get it done but jalen turner uh who else do we have earlier on this card reese we've got a, a lot of a lot of really tall fighters that leave their chin completely up in the air and they're susceptible to getting hit so watch out for that in this matchup both of us going with jalen turner to get the win a couple of guys that train and live in SoCal matching up against each other and a big time opportunity here in this lightweight division now main event lightweight as well Benil Dariush number four taking on number eight Arman Zarukian let us know in the comment section who you had keep it locked in with fight name picks as we always say let's Let's get get into it. it It's so versus soap on this battle of top 10 lightweights. Thanks so much for joining us with Fight Night Picks. As always, one half of your host and duo, Craig Allen X and Instagram at Craig Allen FNP with me to my left to your right fellow football fan, Matt Allen. Matt Allen, FNP. And when it does come down to this matchup, it's four versus eight. It's a battle of guys that stylistically match up really well. Armand and you know him for that powerful grappling. You remember his fight against Islam Makachev that was a fight of the night in the debut. A loss to the now champ. He went out there and absolutely spun Matt Frivola around like a top. He's been able to go out there and put on really impressive performances in the UFC. The lone losses to Makachev and A fight that a lot of people thought he won against Mateusz Gamrot. He was able to drop Gamrot as that fight went on. The big spinning shot. His last couple of fights for Zerukian. He beats Demiriz Magulov. Absolutely out wrestles him. And his last time out there in the third round. Getting the win over Joaquin Silva. That's a big step up. And he did... Now that, yeah, that was a weird fight. That was unranked fighting number like Silva eight. Silva Dariush is a big guy. It was, yeah, it was unranked uh, Silva in a co-main event. It was a weird bit of matchmaking. It was a weird fight. And in the end, Armand Zarukian looked like Donkey Kong or Brock Lesnar with the hammer fist and he finishes Joaquin Silva. But you look at this fight, Matt. Benil Dariush, he loses last time out impressively for Oliveira, and less impressive for dariush but that was earlier on this year he gets to build himself back up the big time blue chipper as he's always been out of king's mma but for Benil dariush one of those big things out of him we know good the takedowns are that grappling that jiu-jitsu mat i went back and i watched a lot of his fights to get ready for this one but you see some of the transitions that he has that's kind of a a big talking point for a guy like dariush But he wasn't able to utilize any of that his last time out in the loss. So Darius, you think about some of the wins, the Ferguson fight, he's able to go out there and dominate the grappling. Cameron, he's able to win out. But that was always the thing about Darius, right? Like, you can't critique his skill set. There is nothing he does in a cage that isn't at a high level, right? He's a good striker, he has great grappling, good wrestling, he has good cardio. The durability has always been an issue for Darius, whether it's been in fights where he's a favorite, in fights where he's an underdog. Like, the Alexander Hernandez loss a lot of people thought was going to be it for Dariush, and to his credit, he was able to rebuild himself back up, but a lot of that was in either A, blood and gut type brawls, like he had against Drakkar Close, or he was able to go out there and use the wrestling to avoid some of those bigger exchanges with his opponents. And you can't be that surprised he got finished by Oliveira right? The guy who has the yeah. record for most finishes in the UFC. Probably the most deadly guy we've ever seen in the cage. But for Dariush, that's always been the thing that's held him back. It's when he's right near the top of the mountain, he gets knocked out, or he gets submitted. And that has been an issue for him throughout a lot of his career. And in this matchup, I think he has a massive striking advantage over Armin Zirukian, to I be know. Complete. But this is why. I think his kicks from the outside are going to be really difficult for Sarukian to deal with if he doesn't care with wrestling consistently and he might do that which could just make Darius' kicks um, obsolete if you will but I think the kicks from outside from Darius to the leg and to the body are going to help him use some of his own boxing and if he's able to do that I think this could be a much more competitive fight because Darius doesn't look like a real intimidating guy right? But when he lands his power shots they're pretty darn devastating. And you go back and you watch some of these fights we've already talked Scott about Holtzman one of them being Dracar Close where it's blood and guts Close looks like he's got Darius finished and then Darius finishes Close and everybody goes crazy and it becomes a meme. The Scott Holtzman fight was absolutely wild and then he gets a really early finish. But from what I've seen from Benil Dariush, when he came into the UFC going back and rewatching the fights, he was never a flashy striker. He had a little bit of speed to his shots, but he was always more a wrestler grappler. To today, I mean, the fight against Ferguson, the fight against Gamrot, Gamrot, where he does overhand left with his back up against the cage and he drops Gamrot like a sack of potatoes, then goes for the wrestling you look at it, though, Gamrot, Ferguson, Oliveira, his striking slowed down quite a bit. And that's my one big negative that I've seen in his fights. Now, the one really big thing in this one, I started the video off the first thing I said, Southpaw versus Southpaw. Armin Zerukin in the UFC has fought Southpaws. He has fought, oddly enough, Matosh Gamrot, a loss, double millionaire, OAM. Olivier Aubame-Mercier, he, that's a win. And then Islam Akachev. So overall, Armand Zarukian against Southpaws in the UFC is 1-2. and two. If you look at it for Benil Daru, she's 4-1-1 one, one against Southpaws in the UFC. He beat Gamrot. He beat Dober. He has a draw against Evan Dunham, where he dropped Dunham. He lost to Michael Chiesa. He beat Wiley vet Michael Johnson. He beat Jim Miller. And then you could say Southpaw, you could say switch stance, but Darren Kirkshank. You go back and you watch that fight, Matt. Darren Crookshank, very tight trunks. Darren Crookshank, to the gills, to the gills. But you look at the transition at Benil Daryush. He has his leg wrapped around the collarbone of Crookshank, and then he works himself in for the choke for the rear naked, puts his leg back down, gets it around for the body lock, gets the rear naked choke, gets Darren Crookshank finished. Again, the grappling sequences out of Daryush, much more refined much less power-heavy, and he's got such good jiu-jitsu. And, he has been gra- uh, and, submitted, though. Like, Michael Kieson was able to take the back and get him out of And there. body control. When it comes to a guy like Zerukian, we did see that net negative his last time out when he's going out there against the boxing Joaquin Silva. He didn't have to in the first round because it was all Zerukian's grappling. In the second round, you saw that powerful hook that... Silva was able to land on Zerukyan. he was on baby deer legs, he then drops in for a takedown, gets Joaquin Silva down, so ultimately, is it a close round? I'd say Silva won it off the powerful shots, but he didn't have the volume, didn't have the control, he didn't have the, the wrestling, so to speak and then in the third round, Zerukian gets a takedown, gets a ground a pound, gets finished. so, for Zerukian, we've seen him hit by that big shot, we've seen him hit by some shots, we'll see how it plays out in this one Matt, Zerukian is favored in the matchup, we have a look at your votes over on uh sorry not topology the youtube community tab you guys have shown up for this one 1400 total votes 58% going with armand rukian i'll go to the top comments uh, we've got Vins saying such close matchup, but I'm leaning Benny. Armand is truly one of the best in the division and the only one who's truly gave Islam a run for his money. Besides when he gets slept, LOL, Adriana Martinez, where you at, bud? Uh, Matt ultimate expert analyst wrestling, wrestling takes the win. That could happen. Uh, Peter Pan saying this will prove if Armand is overrated. So far he is who the fuck's overrating him. I think he's pretty darn good. Uh, and we'll go with one more. Chandler Witt saying battle of mid. Now Chandler, you you show up every week in the comments, and usually they're they're a one, but it's number four versus number eight. And you I'm don't have really that same opinion. I'm really about this fight. So Matt, in this one, who do you have? I have Ironman because I think the wrestling's gonna be too much for Darius. Darius is a great grappler, but on his back, I think Darius is gonna be able to hold him down. I do think the ground and gonna be able to do enough to where if he is a little bit susceptible to some of the shots of Dariush on the feet, I think that's gonna even it out as it goes along. But I'm gonna be really interested to see, A, if this does reach the title rounds in round four and five, because I don't even know who's gonna have the advantage. Because the good thing about Darius is he does have good power, but he doesn't overthrow a lot of his shots. So I do think he'll be fresher by the third, fourth, and fifth round than some might have Soup. and if that is the case he's still able to land on Armin it's gonna be a great fight so I do have Armin in this matchup but I'm really excited for this one yeah and Armin when he's taking on Matoush Gamrot round three round four a little bit iffy round five Zarukian. so we'll see how it plays out another main event it's interesting that way if you look at it from that stance again 13 fighters on this card have already been in a main event or co-main event slot. So that's a big talking point. You got 10 ranked fighters. You got fighters going up and down in weight. It really is an interesting card. We got a lot to talk about on this one. So if you missed any of the it's videos- It's card for a fight night. Yeah, in the overall one, make sure you check them out. The only place you're going to be able to find them is here in the full card video. Question mark kicks back to normal so you can find it two hours before the prelims here on Saturday before the action kicks off from Austin. I'm representing College Station, with my Johnny Manziel jersey. You got the Dolphins hat on. Matt, Brown's looking in a bad way. In 2015, who would have thought, though, that our teams right now are as good as they are? Yeah. Nobody I, could have believed I'm us. Looking forward to PJ Walker and Joe Flacco, but a lot of stuff on the go in the world of MMA. Make sure you keep locked in with Fight Night Picks. we always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it.